Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to The Ramble. I am here today with Aaron Mathias. And Aaron is a friend, but a new friend. And I've been, we had a conversation not, I don't know, five months ago, six months ago. And it was one of those conversations where you're like, I need to talk to this person again. <laughs> now, unfortunately, this is the second time we're talking yeah. on, on the podcast. So, you know, but I, if you have to do it on a podcast to make it happen, then I'm good with that. <laughs> Me too, for sure. And I'll explain why there was a there was a, a space in between where we should have seen each other, but we, we didn't end up seeing each other. So before we get into it with Aaron, I want to read his bio because he's done just a ton of amazing things. And I, I know he's got, although some of the subject matter that we're going to discuss today may be not something you'd expect or have interest in, I think that, and when we get there, you'll know what I'm talking, you know what I'm pointing to right now. I, uh, I think it's very worthwhile hearing. So Aaron is the owner and a director, the director of marketing media purchasing at Coraline Sporting Goods. That is a very cool, very cult famous sporting goods store way up north in Dawson Creek, British Columbia. Aaron is also the president and CEO of Ballistic Custom Turrets, a tech company focused on a ballistic simulator and the creation of custom yardage turrets and waterproof decals for the for precise long-range shooting. We'll get into that a little bit more. As a third-generation owner of Coraline Sporting Goods, Aaron has spent the majority of his life in the sporting goods industry. At the age of seven, Aaron worked for his grandfather, emptying ashtrays and sweeping the floor, and continued to work for the family business until graduation. After graduation, Aaron worked in heavy construction to pay his way through university, where he studied to be a teacher. After university, he spent plenty of time traveling the world and spending his free time in the backcountry. He then went on a 10-year on a career in education where he shared his love of traveling and the outdoors with his students, including volunteer trips to Costa Rica and China, and enjoyed promoting the trades as a dual credit coordinator for Northern Lights College and taught digital media arts focusing on film photography, and 3D design. He then completed a master's degree before transitioning back into the family business when he bought out his mother at retirement. Aaron's main focus was to use his digital media background to get Coraline's online through social media and eventually into online sales and e-commerce. In his free time, Aaron continues to share his passion for the outdoors with his wife and his two and four-year-old children. That wasn't too bad for my first time reading that, that bio. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot there. What? No, it it's too it, in-depth. It's great. And well, I was, I'm a bit dyslexic. So whenever in university I had to read, well, even in elementary and in high school, and you're sitting at the back of the class and you got to read the whatever the teacher puts up on the projector, it was like, I would start sweating with nervousness because yeah. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to put this word in front of that word. So that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't too bad, but Aaron, thank you for being on the ramble. I really, no really am glad to have you here. How have you been since we last spoke? Busy, very busy, but great. No complaints. Yeah. What's kept you busy? Uh, well, for the most part, 
I've put a lot of time into opening our second location. We are mm-hmm. in the process of op- opening up uh, Coraline Sporting Goods 2.0 in mm-hmm. Prince George, BC. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first time you've expanded Coraline. Ever. First time Coraline has ever been expanded, period. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to give a little backstory on Coraline's, my grandparents moved to Dawson Creek in uh, 1961 from the Okanagan, where my grandfather was supposed to run the Hudson Bay Company's sporting goods division here in Dawson. And after a few months, he really didn't like his boss and a sporting goods store called Coraline Sporting Goods, which was opened up by a man whose last name was Courtmeyer and another man whose last name was Lane. That's where the name Coraline came from. Uh, They had started up the business and had a bit of a falling out and put the business up for sale. So it was just a few months old. And my grandfather saw an option to, uh, to purchase his own sporting goods store. And, and I, I think we actually came across the for the sporting goods store in 1962 when he bought it, which is kind of cool for, don't quote me on it. I think it was about $7,000 for all the inventory and merchandise. And, everything. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, he, he, he bought the store and, and focused on, on getting it up and running. So from that point on, I mean, the store only had two employees, my grandfather and my grandmother until uh, my mom and her two brothers got to the age where they could start working there as well. And, and then it was three, four, and five of them working there. But that, that was it until uh, my mom and her brothers bought out my grandparents when they retired in 1990. And at that point, I think there was about six employees. Mm-hmm. And they'd been in the same location for as long as I've been alive. And uh, where we're at now, we're, we're in a new location, I guess, not so new. It's been 14 years in this location. And we now have 25 employees. And uh, now we're opening location two in Prince George. So for context for the audience, Dawson Creek, BC is not necessarily other than the Dawson Creek that was a famous TV show for quite some time, (laughs) which is very different from your Dawson Creek. Very Uh, different. You know, give some context to where that is and how on earth your grandfather even heard about it because it's you know still 10 hours from the okanagan yeah by by driving and that back in the day it must have been even longer oh yeah and i mean he grew up on an apple orchard he built apple boxes and picked apples uh, and how he you know that's a question i'm gonna have to ask my grandmother my grandfather passed away eight or nine years ago but my grandmother's still alive and living on her own and she stops in here every every couple weeks and we we try to make a point to go for sunday brunch with her still so she gets to see the grandkids every week or two or the great grandkids i guess it it would be but i will ask her and i will follow up and i'll let you know how they ended up in dawson so he's always been an avid avid fisherman and outdoorsman Mm -hmm. so i would assume like they moved here specifically to work for the hudson bay company so i'm not sure if he was employed for a little while in the okanagan there Mm -hmm. i'll dig into it i'll I'll, I'll get you an answer so for the yeah the hudson bay company for those in the united states the hudson's bay company is i think it's the oldest store in the world and it was spawned of the fur trading routes all across the country which have well arguably a, a very checkered history depending on how we you know how we learned it in school versus how it actually was but it became a large department store and the owners of that department store eventually bought lord and taylor and the united states as well as i can't remember what the other one was maybe it was Saks fifth avenue maybe not but you know so it became one of the largest department store groups in the world but back in the day like there's no sporting goods section in hudson's bay company today but then in the 1960s, I assume you mean rifles, 
firearms, camping, hunting gear, all that stuff was that for that sale. Is, that is correct. It was hunting, fishing, camping, but that sporting goods division also had hockey, baseball, skates, you mm-hmm. name it. And actually when Corlane's, when he bought Corlane's, it also had hockey, baseball and all those other sports. And all, mm-hmm. it took, um, I've got the original advertisement. I'll send it to you. But back then he had all the other sporting goods industries within the same store, but he decided to do hunting, fishing, camping and do them well. And cause mm-hmm. that that's where his passions allied, not so much in the team sports. So that, that was, that was his thing. And so he, he hit it hard and, and killed off the other lines so he could do, do mm-hmm. the backcountry sporting goods. I'm focused. And I, I really want to spend some time getting into generationally owned businesses yep. and, and how each new owner, you know, from your grandfather to your mother, um, to yourself, how they, you know, how that transition works and how you inject new life into, into an existing business while holding on to the brand identity. Well, in your case, digitizing the brand with all the obstacles that come with digitization for a brand in your particular space. Yeah. Before we go there, so you grew up in Dawson Creek and Dawson Creek, when you were growing up, would it have thousand people, 2000 people? Like how no. small? No, uh, I was born and raised in Dawson and we were always in that kind of 10 to 12,000 people was, was the size of our community. Oh, and we, okay. we, we had, I mean, I was born in, in a, well, not born. I, I spent the first few years, years of my life uh, living in a home that my, my father and he had his uh, auto body because he right out of high school was an auto, did his auto body apprenticeship. And mm-hmm. so he did his auto body work in a third of it. And we lived in the other two thirds of it. And it was fully heated by a wood stove that my mom cooked on, like an old school mm-hmm. wood stove in the, in the corner. We had electricity, but we didn't have running water. And so, I mean, my parents, they, they got married at 18, had my sister at 19 and me at 21. And we lived 10 minutes from town. And I mean, my mom, well, my dad was away working. My mom was out splitting firewood and, and keeping us going as kids. And, and I mean, that was, that was life. That was our early years. And, but, but, but I mean, the community with this Dawson Creek uh, was predominantly a farming community and it, that's, that's kind of what it was based on and it became very famous as the beginning of the Alaska highway. And that's what we're known for. We're mile zero of the Alaska highway. So if anyone in the States is traveling to Alaska, you will be dr- driving right past the front of my store. We are right at the, the mile zero post. Well, I guess I've... it's not the mile zero post. It's, it's the roundabout and the big marker that, that point North. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. And then I remember seeing the sign that said it was either Fairbanks or Anchorage or was still another thousand miles from there. And we'd already yep. driven a thousand miles from the U.S. Canadian border just to get there. <laughs> so, I mean, it <laughs> shows you how far Alaska is when, you know, you already feel like you covered a lot of ground to get to Dawson. For sure. When uh, anytime I travel, for example, I just got back from a buying show in Texas, but anytime I'm out and about and I say I'm from Canada, it's either Toronto or Vancouver. People are like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been there, Vancouver. <laughs> well, I'm Northern British Columbia. Well, well, how far North? And, and I mean, if I'm in the States, I tell them it's about a thousand miles North. What? That far? Oh, you must be right up by Alaska. Nope. There's still another thousand miles before you reach right. the, the Yukon or Alaska borders. So no, we're, we're kind of geographically speaking, we're halfway up the province, but mm-hmm. North of us, there's not a lot for towns and cities and where, where, mm-hmm. where people live, Fort St. John, Fort Nelson, and then just very small communities along the way. And is that because it's undesirable in the winter or is it because 
is it, you know, what would be the reason that it has maintained, you know, little growth and not Dawson because Dawson's growing, yep. but you know, North of Dawson, there's just, you know, not a lot growing. Is it, it what's, what's keeping that area of the world from booming? So first and foremost, I would definitely say winters. I teaching for 10 years, I became friends with a lot of amazing people that would move to Dawson Creek to get their teaching careers started because there were lots of openings here for, mm-hmm. for teachers. And it's really easy to get hired. If there are any teachers down South or anywhere in Canada looking for work, come to Northern BC because <laughs> they pay well and there's, there's great positions. But uh, many people would come here with kind of a five-year plan. And I'd say half of them would end up staying because they grow to love the community and the people and everything. Mm-hmm. And half of them use it as a stepping stone to then head south again to warmer weather. Yeah. I mean, the running joke is northern BC up here. We've got uh, eight months of winter and four months of poor sledding season. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I was mean, pretty hot when I was there in the summer. <laughs> I yeah. imagine. With that said, how was it like for you growing up in Dawson as as a young, young lad, you know, single digits, but then into your teenage years, because you got out really quickly um, when you could. So how did, you know, what was it like growing up and what led you to wanting to me? I, I don't want to venture too far and say desperately wanted to leave, but it sounded like you really wanted to get out and see the world and, and see bank, you know, go to the city and stuff like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, please. Yeah, no, you're, for the most part, I'd say you're, you're correct. So for me, I mean, growing up in Dawson uh, was awesome. I uh, obviously didn't know any different. There wasn't social media. There wasn't everything that connects people to the outside world like there is today. And I mean, part of me thinks that was a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> you're not always comparing what you've got going on to everyone else everywhere else in the world. But for us, we spent a lot of time hunting, fishing, camping, and just being outdoors and whether it was summertime or wintertime, it didn't matter. We were, mm-hmm. we're an outdoor family and I vividly have phenomenal memories of my grandparents picking my sister and I up when we were in our single dig- digits. I couldn't tell you exactly what age and we would disappear into the mountains with them in their little camper or motorhome and, and spending hours and hours and hours. I mean, at, at the time I was bored out of my mind fishing or ice fishing, mm-hmm. not if we weren't catching anything, but I mean, to this day, I, I still remember my grandfather, his, his main thing to, to fish with was co-op brand canned corn was the bait he liked to use. And it had to be co-op brand. It, it had the extra oil or something. And I mean, I've got so many phenomenal memories with my grandparents in the outdoors and then my parents as well. And so to live up here in my single and, and early teens, it was absolutely awesome. If you're into the outdoors, that's... Uh, but do you think that that teaches you something? It's not to say that one is better than the other, because I don't, I, I would never want to say that. But w- what do you think that spending that amount of time sort of by default learning those those kind of skills, which some would argue have no relevance in society today, and others would yeah. say that yeah. more than ever. Yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts on on that as a valuable upbringing, just being outdoors in the wild? As far as I'm concerned, it's invaluable. And I'm trying to continue to pass that on to my children. And Mm -hmm. I see so much value in it to unplug, get away from the laptop, get away from the computer. I mean, I don't give my children a cell phone and an iPad. And in all reality, the main level of the house with my, where my children's bedrooms are, there's no TV. 
I don't have a TV on the main level. There's one in the loft and there's one in the basement. So after the kids are in bed, my wife and I will watch a couple episodes of whatever before we go to bed, but we don't need to be plugged in. We've gone way too far. I mean, I've, as much as I love my smartwatch, I'm, I've for the most part gone back to just an analog watch again, because I don't want the connectivity 24 seven. So uh, I, I, I'm all about with my children, let them eat dirt, let them go outside and play. There's so much to be learned from life experiences and coming right down to injuries that occur in the back country. I don't want to yeah. bubble wrap my kids. I want them to fall into the Creek and get wet because they made the choice to be too close. If I'm right there to catch them. I mean, mm -hmm. as long as we're talking within safe boundaries, I don't, don't want to put them at, at risk, but just the life experience you get out of that compared to being attached to technology all the time is, is invaluable. Why did you, why are you feeling frustrated with it and wanting to step away from things, even like your, uh, you know, what one point you would have gotten excited to get that the, oh, or the Apple watch. And now it's sure. like, eh, you know, what changed for you there? Um, a having children and mm -hmm. realizing how important it is to spend time with the people around us. I'd also say <laughs> losing people, having people pass away and thinking back on how much more time we should have spent with them. I mean, mm -hmm. but, but kids were kind of the catalyst for me that my wife and I both work many, many hours and take our job seriously. And when I got out of the, got out of education and got into business, it was, uh, I, I didn't transition just to, just to jump in and see where the business took me. I want to do big things with the business. I want to move it forward. I want to see growth and I want to put in the time to make that happen. And so it's a bit of an addiction that once you get into that mindset, you're always focusing on the growth and what's the next step. What's the next thing we could mm -hmm. be doing. It took me two years to get core lanes online into the e-com world. And then, okay, we're now there. What's next. So, well, we, I did social media first, then e-com. We're currently prototyping our own action. We're, I, I'm doing a lot of R and D and 3d design and stuff that again, stems from what I did as a teacher, which is great to use those skills, but hmm. constantly thinking about what's next. When we came up with the idea for ballistics, custom turrets that took, a partnership with VRG Interactive out of Toronto, where they have physicists on board and a full tech team that we had build the software and build the ballistic simulator. And so got you, you pay a big chunk of change to get that business up and running with the hopes that it'll take off. And so you want to put the time in and put the work in. And so you're always thinking, what's next? What could I jump into and what could I focus my energy on? When sometimes you need to step back and be like, let's enjoy that here in the now, especially mm -hmm. with little kids. And, th and that's what, that's what really changed it for me was when uh, my wife gave birth to my daughter, who's now four years old as a teacher, I would have had the same schedule as my kids. I would have had the summers off. I would have had, it would have been a great setup as a, as a father, mm -hmm. but after six, eight, 10 months talking with my wife about it. And I apologize. I'm bouncing around a lot between right, ideas here, but once I got into business, I wanted to see it grow. And with, Everything attached to your phone now, people can get a hold of you now, whether it's through Messenger, whether it's through an email, whether it's a text messages, a text message. And so many people expect you to respond here and now. And so when I'm sitting eating dinner with my family, talking to my kids about how their day went at daycare and to tell me something and my 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 watch is vibrating, I'm checking it out, seeing what's yeah. going on. And you know what? I, I realized that hour of time to sit and eat supper with my family that's so important and that's family time get rid of the watch 
mm-hmm. put the phone on mute and put it, leave it on outside of the kitchen. It doesn't need to be there. Cause that's, mm-hmm. that's our time. Mm-hmm. So I hear you, man. I hear you. I got, you know, two and a fresh one. So three and, and the more kids I have and, and the more I go through it, the more I'm pulled to them, you know, as yeah. an, as an addicted apologetic entrepreneur, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I am. Yeah. It just, it gets, you get to a point where you realize that, you know, what are you, you doing it for if you're not doing it for them and yeah. to do it for them means to be there while they are growing and, yeah. you know, being that, you know, you said something really beautiful when you said you want them to fall into a river, but you want to be there to, to, to pick them up. In other words, you're holding the space for them to crash and learn. And you're holding that space, not just, you know, with your arms in your house, but bringing them into the environment and the world around them. I don't know if it was Ira Glass or Jordan Peterson who was talking about how he was having a, a you know, a fight or a row or whatever in, in his backyard somewhere on the street with a, with a friend and they were young kids. Right. And they were, they were, they weren't punching each other in the face, but they were, you know, there was some pushing and shoving. And he said, his mom was there. She walked right past. And, you know, my inclination would be to hover parent and get over there and break it up. And he said, he said, no, like, let us figure it out um, as children so that we can learn to figure it out as adults. And, you know, in that situation, because I think she made the assessment that nobody was going to get hurt. She let them figure it out. She didn't intervene because, you know, as we get older, we just, you know, then we look to, we, we we're more entitled. We look for handouts, you know, different things like that, that I think it's, it's really, and I'm guilty of it, but it's, it's a disservice if we don't let our, our kids kind of crash against the world and, and figure it out. And, and I guess that's a really nice segue into when you decided to, to leave small town life, you know, move to the city, I believe, do your studies in Vancouver yep. and travel, you know, what was, what was burning inside you that you needed to do it there instead of, up, you know, UNBC and Prince George or you, you have, you know, somewhere in Alberta, et cetera, Northern Alberta, like what made you need to go down and experience the city and then experience the world? Well, first off, I'd say, I have to admit a lot of it came down to opportunity. I, um, at a high school, I got into heavy construction and ran equipment in the oil patch and yeah. saved up money because I knew it, I wanted to go away to university. And I actually started taking courses at Northern Lights College here in Dawson Creek. And they offered what's called the ACO program, which is a Alaska Highway Consortium of Teacher Education, because there's, there's a, a shortage of teachers in Northern BC. Simon Fraser University partnered with NLC to offer a teacher, a teacher program that if you train Northern people, they will stick, stick within the North. And so that's kind of where, where it all started that I went to Northern Lights College for two years and did my first two years of of university courses. And then while I was taking that SFU offered some phenomenal teacher training courses, one of which was uh, an outdoor ed program where I spent a month on the Queen Charlotte Islands. We called it camping for credits because it was, it, that's kind of what it was. But <laughs> just what we got to do, we got eight credits to go and hike and explore and learn about the, the flora and the fauna. And we had phenomenal instructors for that program and we're kayaking and hiking and just having an amazing time. But so, yeah, I, I mean, meeting the people from all over that were taking those courses was absolutely amazing. And I just, 
it, it made sense to go to Simon Fraser University. So just taking the program at Northern Lights, Lights College was a, a good start to get my, get my feet wet. And my sister actually moved down to Vancouver and went to university down there as well. She went to BCIT. And in our, in our family, actually, she was the first one to go to university and she did, or not university. She went to a, a tech school and, and I was the first person to get a degree, which was kind of cool. So you beat her it to it. <laughs> I, I beat her to it. Yeah. She did a two-year two program and I did the full four-year program plus a, a year of, um, what did that mean to you? In the classroom. Oh, it was huge. It was, yeah. it was something that I had never planned as a, as a kid growing up because I came from a working class family where you work. And I expected to get into, to stay in, in the trades and stuff. And, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I really enjoyed swinging a hammer. I've built lots of houses working for some contractors and enjoyed what I did. It's just, there was always something else that I wanted to experience as well. I didn't want to jump right into the family business because I'd done it my whole life. And in all honesty, at 19 years old, I didn't want to come back to Coraline's. It wasn't what yeah. I wanted to do because I'd done it my entire life. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do my own thing. And I've always, I always enjoyed working with youth. And so that, that was, that was kind of just the bricks all fell into place that I took a program that was tied to SFU. So I finished my degree at SFU and lived down there for just under three years and loved every minute of it. I mean, once I moved into the dorms, I had, I had one roommate from China, one roommate from England, one roommate for like people from all over the world that I'm now hanging out with every day. And I, absolutely loved it. And then when we talk about living in Vancouver, the restaurants, I mean, I, yeah. my parents weren't big fans of sushi or anything like that. So that was never anything I experienced until I went on a date and, and she wanted to go to a sushi restaurant. And that was a <laughs> new experience for me. <laughs> I, I didn't even grow up up North and I had never had sushi until I was an adult and really yeah. never had, you know, never had, you know, ramen, never had, yeah. Uh, dumplings never had anything that wasn't yeah. pizza or burgers you know yeah and when you i find that food is one of the ways that you can you all of a sudden know that the world is vast oh. different creative without even leaving your you know your, your home city for sure food and and you're just like wait a second there's so much more <laughs> yeah and and just the people that i got to meet and experience and 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 live with and whether you agree or disagree on things you could sit down and have amazing discussions um one of my roommates yeah. father was a politician in south america and so he always had lots of stories and i mean talking about the corruption that goes on in politics in South America. And, and I mean, not to point mm-hmm. fingers at his dad, but the stories that came out were absolutely amazing. Just day-to-day life. I mean, this kid had traveled the world and at, at 19 years old and could go anywhere, but he was at SFU and, and just the, the exposure to the people. And l- like you say, the food, that was, that's the biggest thing I miss about not living in the city is the meals. Yeah. Being able to pick, what do you want to eat tonight? Let's go to a Filipino restaurant. What do you want to eat tonight? Yeah. Let's go up for, for Thai or Indian or whatever. The different cuisines are just absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, and do you feel like today there are, you know, you might live in small town, Dawson Creek or you know, Fort St. John or Northern British Columbia at large, but there is more of an awareness and desire to travel or no, it, it's, it's, um, you know, there's various, there's a separation between the, the two worlds, there's, you know, that, that small town life and sort of the rest of it is, or no, is it all married now? Everyone wants to see the world, no matter where you choose to hang there's, your hat. 
There's definitely a lot more exposure and a lot more culture even here in, in Dawson Creek from when I was a kid to today. I mean, mm. I got to give, again, I got to give the local college a lot of credit for recruiting overseas. And so they've, they've brought in people from India, Asia, Africa, all over the world, that are the, the Philippines that are all now coming to Dawson Creek to go to school. And I'd say half of them end up staying. So even after they're done their program, they've, they've been set up with jobs. It's an affordable town to live in and do have a lot more restaurants and businesses that are expand what's available in Dawson Creek. Let's put it that way. Even our, our dollar stores now bring in a lot of Filipino cuisine and, and, and sauces and stuff like that as well, which weren't available 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's I mean, fantastic. Social, media, social media has been great for that because that's where a lot of the recruiting goes on. But again, just the exposure that people get to see the globalization and, and realize that they want to go out and see these things, test these things has been great. When you were, when you were down in Vancouver, did you ever think you'd come back uh, to, to live in oh. Dawson Creek? No, I didn't. No, no I, I didn't expect to at all. It was, uh, I'd come back in the summers, work for four months in the patch, running heavy equipment, and make enough money to pay for my next year of school. But the goal was, yeah. I mean, I, I started dating a, a woman that lives there and it was just, I, I had finished university, moved back to Dawson to finish paying off the last little bit of student loans and then save up a bit of money, go to yeah. Southeast Asia with a buddy of mine for two months and then move to Vancouver. That was kind of the whole yeah. plan. And then working in, in Northern BC and, and, went over to Southeast Asia and backpacked for two months and had an awesome time and came back just to save up a little more money. And she and I basically split a, a month before I was supposed to move down there. And so then I was like, Oh, what am I going to do now? So I bought a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> money I've been saving. I bought a motorcycle, you know, made financial sound financial decisions. And did you, uh, this, did you take it anywhere on any long haul trips or anything? I was like going to, I was going to do a cross Canada trip. That was what I was going to do. Cause my, my ah. sister and her husband moved out to Eastern Canada and they live in Nova Scotia. So I was like, I'm going to buy a bike and tour across Canada and then maybe dip down into the States and, and kill a couple months, two days after that all occurred, the superintendent of our school district here in town phoned me up and offered me a job and school was supposed to start four days later and they needed a high school teacher. And I wasn't even planning on teaching high school. I was, I was planning on being kind of a upper elementary or middle school teacher, but I, I had a major in English and minor in environmental outdoor education. And so I was like, no, I'm, I'm not looking to teach high school. And that wasn't even in Dawson. That was in Chetwind an hour away, which is a town of 3000 people. So I was like, no, I'm not, not looking to do that. So she called me back a day later and said, I'll offer you a continuing contract and I'll even give you a place to stay if you need a place to stay for a few days here and there. And she said, there's, there's three other teachers traveling back and forth as well that you could even jump in with them if you don't want to move to, to Chetwind. Let me think about it. So I phoned a couple of the other teachers that were going to commute and got talking with them. And I, I, I took the job four days before the semester started to teach English. So technical glitch, um, <laughs> joys of living on a farm uh, in the middle of nowhere where I live is uh, the all the power just went out, which it does a couple times a year, but it's back on now. So we're good. Perfect. All right, my friend, I apologize for the um, for killing our flow. No. So we were we were discussing food, as I recall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
and your travels and you just bought a motorcycle and you had then, you know, instead of going across Canada, decided to, uh, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be presumptuous. Uh, you got offered a job at the school and up in Dawson Creek um, to teach high school. So did you take it? I, I did. I took the job in Chetland in the town of 3000 people and drove an hour every day to work to and from and had a phenomenal experience and within that time started dating my wife mm-hmm. and obviously wasn't my wife at the time and and uh and life played out and it was absolutely amazing and it took me to where i am today yeah i i want to go back just well actually there's a few things i wanted to touch on you know what there's so much here i want to know what led you to make the decision what went on inside of you because i know staring at a new motorcycle and the open road <laughs> across canada and i'm gonna be like mm, school can wait a year yeah. but you decided to go to take the job so why yeah i'd say common sense kicked in with the fact that well and my plan was to still do the open road trip the following summer. So this was now actually at the end of summer cuz school is kicking in November or not November, sorry, September 7th basically. So this was kind of well this would have been right the first week of September cuz it was 4 days before the semester started. So I thought, you know what? I'll work for a year, make money, save the money, and I just moved in with a, a buddy of mine. I was paying 400 bucks a month rent and put it all in the bank and hit the highway the following summer cuz I got 2 months off. But yeah. It was guaranteeing me a contract in the district, which normally you have to work two years plus a day to get a continuing contract. So it was it was that extra little the superintendent offering a continuing contract, which does not happen, period. And it also allowed me to apply for first round draft jobs the following year, which normally as an opening teacher, you're just picking up whatever scraps you can get. So, I mean, the, the, the deal was too sweet and I still planned on traveling the following summer and disappearing. But then I, I met my wife. <laughs> oh, there is. Then, so you didn't go. I, I didn't do the motorcycle trip. And in all reality, the bike I bought wasn't the best suited bike for a cross Canada trip. It's a, a big <laughs> V-twin cruiser. It's, it's, it's not a touring bike. Um, there's no fairings or anything. So the winds in your chest. And I mean, I'll do a 12 hour ride now with friends will disappear for the day and I'm tired. I am sore. Whereas a lot of the, the bikes for those trips are designed for it. And, but I mean, I still, I, I, I rode a lot over the next few years, but, and I started to travel with my wife. Uh, Mm -hmm. we went to Vietnam, we've been to Cuba, we've been to Mexico, but I mean, Vietnam was a phenomenal trip. We went with a group of friends, a buddy of mine is Canadian, but he's, his family's from Vietnam and he married a woman from over there. And so we went over there for three weeks mm. and North or um, South, like, South, South, we, we flew into Ho Chi Minh and drove to Bao Lok. And then from Bao Lok, that's where the wedding was. We went out to the coast and we actually rode motorcycles from Bao Lok four and a oh. half hours through the mountains to the coast. You just and- made up for it. That's oh, a dream it was trip. Phenomenal. Yeah. It was amazing. And I mean, there was eight or nine of us on motorcycles and everyone else took vans to meet us there because there probably were 30 of us that were over there for the wedding. Yeah. So it was so my wife is on the back of this little scooter <laughs> and I'm, that I'm driving, going from beautiful pavement to you drop off the pavement to gravel and it's all broken up. And I mean, your tailbone's very sore. Yeah. That trip, but just absolute phenomenal, amazing trip. Yeah, I, I, Vietnam is is truly one of the most spectacular countries in the world. From the food to the people 
to Ho Chi Minh and Saigon, how that city functions yeah. is something I think every human being needs to see and experience. And and right. you just you just hit the bucket list trip for me is I've been <laughs> to the city five or six times now and uh, Ho Chi Minh and I've always wanted to do the motorcycle trip. But what's interesting about what you said is I just watched. I'm late to the party, but I just watched Long Way uh, Long Way Round. Yep, you and McGregor, yep. Charlie Bowman, and yep. it puts in. I, I got a bike. I got my learners two years ago. Uh, it was a goal when COVID hit. I was like, I got a. You know, I'm just going to do it. I've been talking about it for like a decade. So I got it. And then I got the, the full license last year. I haven't ridden more than six hours, but when you don't watch that film and appreciate how hard that would have been to ride as oh. far as they did every day yep. in the shit conditions. Um, <laughs> no, I, and what I mean by shit conditions was the roads, how bad yep. the roads were that they had to, to, to maneuver and, and getting yep. stuck. I, and the mental frustration when I was, when the first time I went snowmobiling, I buried my sled a, a dozen, two dozen times. I don't even know. And I couldn't, by the end of it, not only could I physically not lift the, the sled out of the, the, the snow anymore, yeah, I was yeah. so frustrated with myself. And there's this great scene, and in, in I don't know what episode it is in that, where, because Ewan's not as good a rider as his buddy Charlie yeah. is. And so they're going through this like boggy stuff. And he's burying his bike left, right, and center. And I just appreciated how mentally challenging that must have been for him and for yeah. a celebrity of his status to just kind of show that vulnerability on camera. I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it's a big digression, but I want to I want to just take it back a second to because you you touched on this really important moment in in life. You know, I had the the privilege, like you, like many of us Westerners do, of of getting the travel bug sometime sometime in university where you just like, <laughs> screw, screw the screw the rest of this. I'm going traveling. That's where my education yeah. is, and I believe that is where part of our education needs to be. And you're out there, and you're just there's just this feeling of invincibility, of curiosity that is just blossoming in you. And then there's the moment on the other side of it, which you just described, where the kernel of, I got to be reasonable for a second, comes back <laughs> in. <laughs> yep. You know, whether it's like the, the third trip, the fifth trip, some people, you know, the, the whole millennial generation never went back to work. But, <laughs> I, but the, like, you know, I want to know just real briefly how a trip to Southeast Asia for you led to the philanthropic work you did, I think it was in Costa Rica, because one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. It can be often a very selfish, I don't regret it, but my traveling days on my own were my most selfish of my life. And, you know, deservedly so for all of us, if we can do it, but yep. you decided very quickly to make it about something else, as I understand it. Can you tell me for a little sure. bit about that? And I'm going to, I'm going to rewind the clock and throw a lot of credit at my parents and a lot of that comes from well well just who they are my parents are absolutely amazing people and they've always been no matter how little we had uh in the early years we we were we lived below the poverty line but it didn't matter where we were there was always something to give to those in need mm -hmm. and so they they instilled that in, in my sister and i both at a young age and so that that was always there that that was always there. And so, I mean, when you spend, whether it's a week, a month, two months overseas in what I'll call developing countries or third world countries, you really pick up on how fortunate you are 
living, growing in, growing up in, in, in the West, we're, we're, we're so fortunate. And seeing these kids out on the streets, running around, kicking a rock around and having the most fun they could possibly have with that stick or the rock or whatever they've got, a half deflated soccer ball makes you really realize that all those, the money isn't what matters. The happiness is what mm-hmm. matters. And so yeah. again, I was fortunate enough that to meet my wife and she shares the same values and, and the same passion for traveling. And I mean, she's also from, she's from a town of a thousand people in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. She's from an even smaller community than I am. And she just happened to move to the big city of Dawson Creek for work. And eyes, well, eyes wide as she gets to the big city of <laughs> Dawson Creek. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to Dawson Creek to appreciate that comment, but <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, she and I both, really enjoyed traveling. She was more of the, put me into a, an all-inclusive resort and I was more of a backpacker. And so we've yeah. done both all for spring break. When I was teaching, I'd say, yep, pick whatever resort you want. We'll go hang out on a beach for a week and, and do nothing cultural there. You'll see the the tourist part of Mexico or whatever. But when I go someplace, I want to see what, where are the locals eating? What are the locals mm-hmm. doing? And I want to hang out with the locals and be invited into their kitchen to have a meal with them. Like I want to experience the culture, but then that all ties into what can I give back and how mm-hmm. can I thank them for, for what they experienced or what I got to experience there. And so within my first year of teaching, there was, I was asked if I wanted to help out chaperone a trip and help out with an after school group, which I mean, this is going to get controversial now, but it was me to we. So if we want to talk about the We Day scandal, the whole Me to We scandal, I was part of that group. And I mean, those were, I am, were those the glory days of Me, me to We? That, that, was, that was when it first got started. And I mean, I got to meet the Kielbergers before anyone knew who they were. It was the beginning of the Me to We movement. And I really enjoyed his the Kielberger story about traveling the world and phenomenal story. If, if you can look past the political direction they have gone in a, as an organization. And I'd say now I'm not a big supporter of them, but I won't, I won't get into that part of it, but just that experience to run this after school group. I said, yeah, let's do this. And got to take students to a leadership conference that was all about youth helping youth. And then as the me to we movement grew, I thought it was, I thought it was a great organization for the fact that, they were at about 92% of every dollar donated went to the cause that you were donating it to. And 8% went back or went paid for the people's wages and stuff. But, and, and they made all their money off the sale of books and clothing and, and those sorts of things, which was way better than UNICEF and a lot of the big organizations where I, I won't throw numbers out, but way less than 50% of every dollar donated goes to yeah. the cause. So, I mean, I thought it was great. It tied in with the school system. And so I started an after school group and I ran it the whole 10 years that I was teaching with the focus on youth helping youth locally and abroad. So mm-hmm. we would do local initiatives, whether it was with the food bank, um, the soup kitchens, whatever was going on in our community. We'd quite often adopt two or three families at Christmas, depending how much money we could raise through pie throws at school. I'd, I'd get teachers to sign up to be the targets. And some of the teachers were just phenomenal, phenomenal sports. Yep, let's do this. And I mean, there were a couple that would have been the, the hated teachers that the kids wanted to throw the pie in their face. And there were a couple that were like, Yep. And one came dressed in, uh, she made herself a, a dress out of garbage bags and did it all up and made a show of it. And people, it was like $5 a pie throw. Well, people were like, for 50 bucks, can I just walk up and put one in her face? <laughs> as long as it's gentle, yes. But I mean, we do these, these talk about memorable experiences from my career. Not a lot of them come from the classroom. They come yeah. from these sorts of things. So we do all these local things to help out the youth 
and families in our community. And I just decided, you know what, we're going to save up. I'm going to offer it out there to students to do a, a trip abroad. So I booked through an organization for the first one. And I brought uh, about 25 students with me down to Costa Rica. And it it was a very planned out itinerary. This is what you spend and this is what you're going to do. And it was through a big organization. But our tour guide, Eric Salazar, he's still a friend of mine today. And I still talk to him fair, not, not, not regularly enough. We'll put it I'll put it there, but he was willing to deviate from the plan if other things that weren't initially on that itinerary, but were extremely value-added tours and not, not excursions, but what he lined us up through his, not a lot happens in those countries that give back that aren't through the church. So through his own church, he lined up some things where we got to go and spend time in an orphanage. And we spent two or three days in an orphanage where the first day we were just, I don't want to say cleaning because we weren't cleaning, but we were clearing out one of the fields that they play in and there was chunks of concrete and rebar and stuff like that. And these kids are just kicking around a soccer ball mm-hmm. and not worrying about they're in flip-flops, but they could be breaking their toes, kicking chunks of concrete and getting impaled on rebar. And so, I mean, we just kind of worked the first day cleaning things up and we asked, what else can we do? We brought down soccer balls and basketballs and all sorts of things. And uh, day two was just a full day of playing. And mm-hmm. day three, I, again, there was such a language barrier most of the kids in, didn't speak English and my kids didn't speak Spanish, the kids that I took down there, but play, the language of play is universal and these kids just want to play. And so um, to see these kids from Dawson Creek, who I'll say we're an oil and gas rich community, the kids here are quite affluent, The major- a lot of them are. And to see those kids transform in 20 days of working in orphanages and volunteering and giving back and, and wildlife sanctuaries and a tree reforestation project. And I mean, I made them pack bags of rocks to build trails through a, a national park. It was a day of packing 25 pound sacks of rocks. And these kids are yeah. grade nine, 10 was just to see them working so hard. And I mean, one girl had her cell phone stolen and she was upset, but she's like, it's trivial. Yeah. These kids are, are, are looking forward to where their next meal is going to come from and are extremely happy that someone wanted to play with them today. And here I am complaining that someone stole my cell phone. Totally. What, what, what really matters. So, I mean, those transformations were huge. That, that was still highlights of, of my career. And after the first trip, I mean, there, there were tears. The day we left the orphanage we spent three days at, uh, a lot of the girls, my students were crying and, and saying goodbye to these kids that they built these connections with. And this little boy came up to me and he, he sat on my knee and, and uh, Eric is, is kind of standing right beside me. And, and the boy tapped me on the chest and was talking and, and Eric, Eric broke down and he started to cry. I said, what's wrong? He says, nothing. He said, uh, he just said, one day we'll see each other running in the park, you and I, and I'll be an adult and I will know, or you will remember me, but but until then, I will always be here with you in your heart. Oh. And I started to cry. <laughs> like I was just, Ugh. yeah. it's like, I can hold this together until, until he did that. And he, he was hugging me and stuff. And these, these kids that, that, that had so little, we, we were there for a birthday party and there was one birthday cake that was about a, a six inch birthday cake that they bought for every kid that had a birthday that month. Mm-hmm. Each kid didn't get their own birthday. They had monthly birthdays. Mm-hmm. And I said, can I just go buy like three or four more cakes? Cause there's 30 kids in this room, all splitting this cake. And, and, and she said, no, no, you can't. I'm like, why not? Well, cause next month you're not going to be here to buy birthday cakes. Yeah. Fair enough. 
So, I mean, those are the sorts of things that once you've got a taste of it and seen that and experienced it, it just, it's, it's with you forever. And you, yeah. hopefully you'll always want to continue to do that. I've, I've, need- had student, I've, I've had students reach out to me since I've got one in particular who she is a lawyer in Vancouver for Aboriginal or First Nations law. And she is part First Nations. She's born and raised here in Dawson. And I took her on one of these trips and she shot me a message two, three years ago and just said, thank you very much for that trip. And, and you were an inspiration as a teacher and for taking me on that trip. And it was a, it was a real game changer for me. And I mean, to get that after I've been out of the game for three, four years to get that. I mean, I taught her about eight or 10 years ago. And when previous students send you those sorts of messages, it's just, that's, that's what it's all about. I'm a huge believer in the importance of these, you know, if you want to call it a missions trip, if you want to call it a, you know, philanthropic trip, you know, whether it's through a church or through an organization, I know a lot of, you touched on it. A lot of these organizations get, get caught in the, the rub of like, well, your, your expense structure is bloated and how much of this is just job creation and self-gratification for yourselves versus actually helping the communities. Uh, and some are really fantastic, but I have never, ever met somebody, be it the chaperone, be it the student my wife went on to, who didn't have a life-changing experience by doing that activity. And at least, you know, obviously to your point with, with Eric, like, you, you maybe don't keep in touch with the kids, but your experience with them there suggests that it was impactful to them as well. And it, it's so f- interesting that you mentioned the piece about the cell phone, because when I you know, traveled, you know, not, not necessarily doing charity work, but my wife, the same is like, and you do lose a phone. It's very freaking different than losing a phone here. And you're just like, my world is over when you're you know, back yeah. at home and working. And that's the energy and like the, the mindset that I wish I knew how to cultivate more often. The one that yeah. you get when you're down there, they're traveling or doing this work in those countries and, and you just have a better perspective and you have a better feeling inside you. I, everybody that I've ever met traveling is a better, better person you know, while yeah. they're gone. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, all this other gunk comes in. You know, the, it's just, I guess it's, that's just the ebb and flow and, and, and just like our constant journey is how do we bring those lessons back into our everyday moments when we are frustrated that we lost our phone. Yep. And man, I'm really, really grateful you shared that story. And I think that there's, you're, you're sort of touching on in these little bits here, a life philosophy that I think is really important. And that life philosophy includes the importance of giving back, the importance of being present with people, the importance of family time, the importance of getting out there and learning lessons the hard way and and sort of adventuring through your own life and seeing where it leads you. And I wanted to take that as a as a chance to come back to when you decided, you know, what shifted in you to come back and take over the family business, you know, move back up from the big shiny city, which couldn't not have been an easy choice. <laughs> and I mean, maybe there's some pride involved. You know, I remember when I moved to New York to launch a business, or even when I went on a scholarship down to North Carolina, and both times I came home, it was a bit tail between my legs. Both times, you know, you're like out there, I'm going to go start my life in North Carolina or in New York on separate occasions and, you know, come home. And, and so there's this weird sense of, well, I failed, but then there's also this sense of, no, I'm just being called home. So I want to know about that experience. And then I want to dive into the business 
Yeah, for and sure. How you're, you know, how you're approaching that today. I, I'd say you hit the nail on the head with the whole coming back home. Uh, when I was living in Vancouver, planning on staying in Vancouver, it definitely, uh, it definitely was a bit of a tail between the legs to not move back down to Vancouver because that was that was kind of the whole plan. And and I mean, there was that whole from the small town move down to the city and and all these aspirations and dreams to of, of what life was going to be like in the city. And when things kind of fell apart and I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Well, I'll work for this one year here in Dawson, I guess, or in Chetwind actually is what it was. And then life happened and met my wife and, 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 and the rest is history. And I mean, I, I don't want to say things are written in the stars and everything happens for a reason, but everything has led me to where I am. I, I do believe we make our own destiny, but there are, there are definite, definite subtle hints that guide us in directions and, and things do happen for a reason. And I mean, in retrospect, I honestly wouldn't want to be living in Vancouver and in, in the city at this point in life, living in Dawson Creek has allowed me to invest in all sorts of things, whether it's real estate. I mean, my wife and I, we, uh, I bought my first home, she moved in with me and then she bought her first home and we moved into it and rented out mine because uh, I've got an aunt and uncle that have done, have done that quite a bit and they own multiple properties around town and, and they're amazing friends of mine, not just family. We, we hang out. And so they're always there to offer us guidance and help if we wanted to get into it. And so I thought, you know what? 5% down first home I paid. I mean, from Vancouver, it'll sound crazy. I paid 167,000 for my first starter home, put 5% down. And then my wife paid similar for her first starter home that we then rented moving into mine. We then rented mine out and cash positive ever since. So we then leveraged those two to buy a third and then a fourth. So, I mean, we've got four rental properties, which I would never would have been able to get started in Vancouver just to get the down payment for the first rental property, let alone my own house. Yeah, so it just, I mean, just for context, um, for those who don't live in Vancouver, a 500,000, 400,000 square foot apartment is north of a million. Now, you know, yeah. 20% down average income to, to buy a home is at least 220 K a year. You know, yeah. it's very, very hard unless that money's being given to you. Uh, to yep. get into the market anywhere yep. within 150 kilometers of Vancouver, it's all the same. Oh, for sure. So. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, those opportunities were, were here as well as on a teacher's salary. When I started, I mean, I think I started at about 40,000 a year is what I was making teaching after five years of education and everything. And, and I, I want to say it was 38, five or something is what I started my first year teaching with the goal of, okay, every year, make a little bit more, a little bit more and get to that point where I'll be that comfortable teacher. But again, even with that salary, we could afford to travel in the summers. We could afford mm -hmm. to disappear at spring break or at Christmas if we wanted to go somewhere. So, I mean, living in Vancouver, it would have been just paying the bills day to day, but experiencing the culture and the food and everything. But I also, I mean, I love going back to Vancouver for a week or two to, to visit friends and, and to experience everything, but boy, I look forward to getting out of there as well. <laughs> the hustle and bustle, the traffic, yeah. the people, parking. Hey, we're not all that bad. <laughs> no, no, not <laughs> no, at I'm all. kidding. I, I left, I left, I left two years ago. I've been there. I've been in cities for eight years, nine yeah. years. I know, I, I know, I know what you're talking about, right? It's just, yeah. it was, as soon as that space enters your soul, you you do crave some energy from the city, but you yep. crave it in, in in little little bites, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a great like way a to, ex to explain it. And I mean, now we 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 quite often fly out every summer, every second summer to Halifax or Dartmouth side. I guess my sister and her husband live there, but they live twenty minutes out. They're right on a lake, waterfront. Mm -hmm. 
you boat right up to their front yard. And, but you're 15 minutes from downtown, you can go down to the cool clicky uh, two if by coffee shop and get your latte and, and fresh croissant and kick back with all the, the trendy people and <laughs> have fun in, in the downtown core, hit all the pubs, do all that fun stuff. But again, after a couple of weeks, it's nice to go home. And that is a great town. I have heard, I have heard that that is like Phenomenal. one of the most unsung hero, uh, best places to live and affordable still that whole maritime <laughs> No, not anymore. Okay. Borderline. So COVID Borderline. was bad for that, for the, the East coast, all of Ontario realized that there's a lot of lakes out East and you can work remotely. And so the market has shot through the roof and places are selling within the week they're listed. Um, my brother-in-law's best friend, sister's a realtor. And, and she's like, I walk people through with my cell phone up to show them the house. She's like, I'll do that three times. And then there's a bidding war and it's sold without anyone <laughs> stepping foot in it for 20, 30% above asking price. So crazy. it's, it, it, I mean, compared to Vancouver, it's still cheap, but yeah. it's a lot of Ontario has, has been buying up the Maritimes, but mm-hmm. I highly recommend getting out there. I mean, the people, even Halifax, I mean, Dartmouth and Halifax are separated by a little, by a bridge, basically the ocean, there's an inlet. And Halifax is hustle bustle, but it's not like Vancouver. You walk down the street and people are saying hi and they're making eye contact and you go into a pub and they're come sit beside me at this long bench. And then you're best friends with the people you're sitting beside before you walk out. Like it was a, it's, it's a very laid back, small town, big city. So there's my plug for the the Maritimes. (laughs) I know. And if Vancouver was unfriendly before, which it has a reputation of being, it's not actually an unfriendly city. But it, it has a reputation of being unfriendly and you can I see why. Yeah, and yeah, I, and I, they have like, I, you put now you, two years of people wearing masks. It's even like, it's like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to say hi to each other again. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, to, to go back to, you know, you came back into the business and I've... I've always been curious, the dynamics, the, the sensitivities as an entrepreneur coming into a multi-generational business, how do you insert yourself, insert your vision into this? But I guess we have to put some context because we haven't really done that. So you're, you own a hunting store, essentially. We call it a sporting goods store, but it is firearms. We are hunting, fishing, camping. The sporting yeah. goods that we do are hunting, fishing, camping yeah. specific. And yeah, it's uh, best way to put it is it's kind of like a small Cabela's. Yeah. But with more emphasis on the firearms, because we have a custom gun shop that we build high-end hunting rifles. So I've got mm. four, one, two, three, I've got four or five gunsmiths, which isn't actually a certified trade in Canada, which is another rabbit hole we could go down to discuss. But I've got five gunsmiths and a machinist, and we build our own line of firearms and do a lot of full customization on other firearms. So, I mean... Mm. That's one of the big draws of core lanes. Aside from the amazing people that work here, that's the first draw, (laughs) but we've got uh, knowledgeable staff. I've got a lot of employees that have been here more than 10 years. I've got some that have been here over 20 and, and yeah, so we are a a fairly heavily gun oriented business, but when I say guns, I'm not talking black guns and pistols. It's, it's bolt action hunting rifles. Yeah. But what was the initial question? I've I've, I've kind of digressed here. No, it's all good. (laughs) Like I, the funny thing about that is, I went up to the store to buy my first firearm this past summer. You were, you were gone. I was, away. Uh, you were, I was out of you the were in, you were in Halifax, right? You were in, it was in Halifax. Yeah. yeah. So there, there, it all ties together. Yeah. But 
you know, I'm in I'm in apparel and retail as my main career. And your culture, you know, this is you're talking about it being a gun store, right? And there's a perception about hunting that I do want to touch on. But this is a firearm store and it is literally the friendliest, best educated staff on, you know, highly technical equipment, you know. And I just I just want to know is this, you know, how did you build this to be such an incredible place to visit and and um and I mean visit as in like literally just hang out in the store if you need you know gun firearm rifle etc get one or your hunting gear but it's just a great place to be the energy was joyful to you know maybe that's too much of a word but <laughs> I for it but it just felt that way you know everyone just felt really happy there and even the customers seemed that way like did you cultivate this did you have a philosophy on brand building and and team building to or was it always this way as you took over the business like bringing back to that point yeah well i'm going to start off by humbly thanking you for for that description of our our, our store and our business because that's that's where we want to be and i mean we strive for that and we will always have failures and, and there will be customers that won't be happy with with us every now and then. And I mean, everybody makes mistakes and it's how we handle those mistakes that I think define us as, as a business. But when we focus at the, I'm hoping 95% of customers that are tickled pink and have the same feeling that you did when you came into the store, I would say it's been more of an intrinsic uh, cultivated atmosphere that it's just, and, and I got to give full credit to my family, mm-hmm. not to me. It was like that when I got here. So my mom and my two uncles, Rod and Tim, I mean, Tim's still a business partner of mine. He owns percentage of the company still, but my mom and my other uncle moved out or, or both retired. And, but my mom still works for me. Cause again, she said the business is her third child and she couldn't just walk away from it. And <laughs> she had a two-year retirement plan and we're going into year five and she still works for me mm-hmm. four days a week. But, but I mean, that's the, that then comes back to why is it like that? Because the people are like that. And I mean, we've, we value people first. We're a family and people oriented company, not people over profits. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's about the people and it's about the experience. And I mean, we live in an oil and gas rich community. So, I mean, we're not offering minimum wage to start working here. You have to be competitive to keep quality people. And we've lost a lot of phenomenal people that I'd love to have still working here just because there's the big, the big money draw elsewhere. But we've like, even when I jumped on board, we discussed what is our focus? I'd say kind of when, when I jumped in to the business uh, as there was continued growth within our store and we're getting online. So we're getting a lot more orders from the rest of Canada. There, there were issues that the more business you do, the more issues you may run into or mistakes you may make. And as we're shipping product all, all around Canada, I mean, someone pulls the wrong product, you throw that in the box and it makes it out to Halifax or wherever. And okay, well, how do we fix that problem? Because we've now mm-hmm. got a first time customer that's not happy because they didn't get what they ordered. So you go that next step, get it back. How do we make this right? What else can I do to, to help you out? Is there anything else you need? I'll make you a smoking deal. And it's, it's all about those relationships. And beyond that, I, I'd say a lot of it has been intrinsic cultivation. But now, as we're going into opening up a second location, we've had to put it all on paper. We've had mm-hmm. to sit down and create what is what is Corlane's. So we had to do the full flow chart of what we stand for. I had to create that uh, the vision and mission statements for the business. And so all the things that companies focus on, we didn't have because we were just a ma and pa shop. We Mm -hmm. were just 
four or five people working in a store helping customers that then within 15 years grew to 25 people and oh crap we now need to actually focus on structure Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of our big our big focus right now and again i mean we've hired some phenomenal people we hired our uh, manager and assistant manager of the prince george location and the manager came from a big box store a, a cabela's Bass Pro Shop, and the assistant manager came from um, a competitor in Grand Prairie, and she, what they both brought to the table were things that we were definitely lacking on, and the structure that Russ brought from the big box store, he's he's asking for things, he's asking for documents, he's asking mm-hmm. for structure. So he worked in our store for a month and a half or so before he moved to Prince George to focus on getting that store up and running, and and he and I have been working hand in hand to. Um, create all the documentation, create the flowcharts, create the the HR documentation and, and the structure that we've been lacking. So, I mean, one of the most exciting things getting out of opening location two is putting the structure into location one without losing the family atmosphere and the friendly atmosphere, because we don't want to be that structured in a box type business. No, we're again, we're, we're still going to be people first. But we need to know how do we duplicate what we have here to another town without having it written down? Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, what I'm going to say here, Aaron, is because I, I want to dive into what you just said from the standpoint of well, digitization of the business. How are we digitizing the business and taking those values that you're, you're talking about people first and this warm and friendly family friendly vibe and bringing it into uh, the digital space, maybe the metaverse space <laughs> down the line. I've been looking into that. Yeah. <laughs> But because we we were cut short with our technical issues, I think we're going to have to do a part two uh, to get to dive into that. And I want to, I also want to, as a lead in, talk about the culture wars as they are around the industry you're in, hunting, perception, yeah. as well as navigating those waters in the digital space. So. I, I mean, there's just there's just so much here that I want to get into still. So, are we are we set to do that? Are you cool to do that with me one more time? I'm good. Yeah, okay. for sure. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Aaron, for part one. No and problem. Part two will be uh, will be available right beside this, so no one will have to jump very far. We'll just sandwich them together. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Aaron. All right. So Aaron and I had some technical difficulties last week, a full-on power outage in my house uh, that shut down everything. And so we're doing 2.0, but we're doing 2.0 inside 1.0. So forgive us for jamming these two together, but I assure you we are handsomer and wiser this week than we when we're recording this now than we were last week. Right, Aaron? For sure. hundred <laughs> percent. I'm, I'm feeling way better. <laughs> well, one thing I can tell you for certain is I am now shaved. So when you see these or, or at least uh trim manscaped, let's go with manscaped. manscaped right. Yeah. I don't know if they're brand <laughs> infringing on, uh, on manscaped <laughs> brand, but it's uh, above the color manscaped. We'll go with that. Right. Yeah. I, and I had, as an aside, I had a, uh, three month beard going last time we spoke. Yeah. And there was just this, you know, I'm fine with being gray at 35, you know, a lot of, lot of salt and pepper on the side and in the the wrong lighting, a lot of salt and pepper on top. Yeah. But I had this like white patch in the middle of my beard. 
as you <laughs> will have seen if you've seen the video. And I, the bigger it got, the bigger the white patch got. And I'm like, it's a bit Santa Claus for me. So I got to. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I, I just turned 40 in January and I'd say since I was about 35, I've got, I've got it coming in white on both sides, not so yeah. much down the middle, but solid white. And I, I, I ran a beard for uh, Movember here a couple of years back and I'm like, I, I like it. I'm going to keep the, I'm, I'm going to keep rocking it until I went out for supper with my parents and the waitress asked if my dad and I were brothers <laughs> and went like, home and nope. shaved. <laughs> going home to shave, get rid of it. Oh, it's, it's one of those things like where I just saw a photo of Chris Pine. Remember Chris Pine, yep. Star, Star yep. Trek and yeah, God, everything. Right. My favorite Chris Pine movie is hell or high water. Uh, awesome movie. Yep. So good. And he, he had like, you know, he had like a man bun and a beard, but it was all gray. And I'm like, frick, like that guy is never gray on camera. <laughs> and he is almost entirely gray. And then I saw this photo of Matt Damon. And it's like all gray, yeah. but yet never see him gray. And, you know, on just, movies, on movies. Yeah. I just saw him on the cover of GQ. I don't know, late last year, not gray at all. And I'm like, what's with the shape shift? Like yeah. I get it for movies, yeah, but I don't get it for a magazine cover. Yeah. You know, you are, that's you like why. Yep. Or, or maybe the gray was not real at all. And that was like for a movie and I just have him backwards and he's ageless <laughs> at 50. I don't know. <laughs> I just watched him in Clearwater. Have you seen Clearwater? Oh, I want to, I haven't seen it yet. I was impressed. A totally different role for him. I liked yeah. it. It was good. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he, he's kind of got that, that one trick that he does. So, so freaking good. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But, and, I'd say a lot of my favorite actors, I know we're totally off topic, but a lot of my favorite actors aren't the most diverse, but it's, they're consistent. You know what you're going to get when you go to watch a, a Will Smith movie or a Matt Damon movie or whatever, but, but they've got who they are and they do it so well. It's bankable. It's bankable yeah. because it's consistent, which let's use that as the jumping back point to Coraline's <laughs> <For sure. laughs> like, yeah. have anyone in the history ever like Coral or gone from consistency in movie stars to consistency at your like your hunting that's store <laughs> not at all that's a first for sure we we yeah. just we just did it but the point <laughs> is actually incredibly spot on because when you're talking about multi-generational businesses and for those in the audience like i know what it's like to intersect myself as a consultant as an earned equity owner as an advisor and as an employee into existing businesses with strong histories. And that, you know, it's, and I think that there's another degree to that where it's a family owned business and there's not just a strong history of the business itself and what that brand is and what it means, especially in a small town like Dawson Creek. And you have, I imagine for yourself, cause it's been this way for me, there's a delicate nature in how you interject an entrepreneurial freshness of ideas and change into an existing infrastructure. Yep. So can you, you know, when you started as an owner, not as an employee, not as yep. inside core lanes, yep. can you just, you know, how, how were you thinking about, I got all these ideas. There's a digitization in the world coming that I want to bring core lanes into. How yep. were you thinking about that as it related to, the family history, the lineage, and, and even the existing partnerships. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, 
at the time when I jumped on board, and I mean, still today, I, I want to say we sit around 25 people working in this building. Mm-hmm. And with everything I'd experienced over, well, all the different careers, but I can jump back into the, the education world. Anytime there was new leadership, it always brought on a, okay, well, what's this going to look like? Are they going to try mm-hmm. and throw, throw the baby out with the bathwater and start fresh? Or are they going to build off the framework that's already in place? Or are they going to just jump in and keep it as is status quo? And so when I started working core lanes five years ago, August, I think was when I came back to the store full-time with um, purchasing in, which didn't actually occur till year end just for tax purposes, but uh, started August 1st. I just came in and was best way to describe it as a silent employee that I just, I wanted to see how things were running. I knew roughly what, what the business was like because I've been tied in for so long, but I came in and I didn't change a thing. I just went to work and -hmm. I spent a lot of time on the gun counter. I got set up this office for um, more of the digital world and getting social media up and running and figuring out posts and, and creating brand partnerships and stuff with places like Black Rifle Coffee and, and things like that, just to get the, the whole social media up and running. But I came in and I, I worked for a year. I wanted to see who played what roles, who were the, we'll call it the silent influ- in influencers that would yeah. kind of control the ship and see who were the outspoken people. And, and, and I just soaked it all in for a year. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of right off the bat. I just came in, listened to what everybody had to say. And then after 12 months was up, I, I became more vocal without doing any major changes. I just said, first thing first is I want to get us up and online now that we've built social media presence. And I even created our, our new logo. So like the, the elk head that is the core lanes brand mm-hmm. um, was one that I'd created actually when I was still teaching media arts, trying to, I went through 20 or 30 different designs, knowing I wanted to have something black art or tattoo like, uh, but not cliche nineties tattoo, sharp black art, something that could, would have more of a lasting um, logo focused on elk. And I, I drew up 20 or 30 different designs and like this, didn't like that, like this, didn't like that. And just would bring in new designs to, to my mom and her brothers to see what their thoughts were. And, and yeah, so I, sorry, I've kind of digressed there, but when I jumped back in here, I, I just, yeah, I was silent. And then for 12 months and then just said small steps, Mm-hmm. This is something that I see that's going well. We're going to push that. This is something that seems to be a little shaky. Let's focus on modifying that. To get online, it it it, it became such a huge beast that I wasn't expecting because it's not like you can just flip a switch and have an online website. We had to have new point of sale software, inventory management software, shop tracking software for our custom gun shop for projects, and and then the e-com and then tied in with the the digital marketing for the e-com and then finding running into the the challenges being in the gun world that you can't pay to push ads in social media or anything like that, or even on Google, if it leads back to a website that sells firearms. Can you show a firearm? I can show a, I I can show a firearm and, and we do it lots in our social media. I just cannot pay to push those ads. Right. But I can't even take a jacket. I can't have a, a solid black bomber jacket, let's not use bomber, a solid black raincoat. I can't just take pictures of that, put them online and pay to push that ad. If it comes back to a website that sells firearms. Oh, any product whatsoever, because the site 
holds yeah. or has firearms. So do you have any paid media strategy in the company or, or activations in the company? Yes, but they are outside of your your standardized media stream. So these are the sorts of things that I had to learn and overcome. And it was a two year and, and I'm still learning today. And I've become really good friends and business partners with a couple of people in the tech world with our side businesses like Ballistics, who Can you I just explain what Ballistics is. So Ballistics, B-A-L-L-I-S-T-I-X dot C-A is a, a software company that we started up where we created a ballistic simulator, which you can go online and you can plug in your data for a firearm that you have and the scope that you have. And we can laser etch a custom yardage turret or a custom yardage turret sticker to wrap your Mm -hmm. turret with. And so just getting into the tech world and and meeting these tech people, I now go for coffee with one in particular, like every second week. And we're constantly talking about digital strategies, media strategies, and how we can advertise, whether it's ballistics, even though it doesn't sell firearms, it's a firearms related brand. And there are images within the website of firearms. We can't pay to push that. So it's, it's a little frustrating, but. uh, Can I, can I ask, uh, can I interject there and ask if you think those are fair rules or do you think that those rules and, and do they apply to the U S the does the U.S. have similar rules to Canada? Um, and do you think or do you see changes or way they, ways that they can do better for businesses like yourself in, in this firearm, uh, that, that touch into the firearm space? And I'll, and I'll just asterisk that with saying, like, the biggest geeks I know yep. are hunters. They, and this is, you know, there's probably this terrible stereotype of like an Elmer Fudd type guy and the hunters that i know are so into the the tech into the gear and i know that's a bit different than than online advertising what we're talking about but there's an incredible educational component that goes alongside the the passion and the pursuit of of um you know being a firearm owner and uh you know being skilled in it and of course hunting with it and so it just it seems i guess maybe out of step that there would, you know, the type of people that are being attracted to this are, you know, <laughs> CEOs and, and engineers and marketing directors and photographers and, and people who just love gear and tech and want, and want to know as much as they can about the gear. Yep. So, you know, at, with that said, kind of going back to the question, are we, are we really, are these old aged laws? Are we out of step with them? Is there ways we can improve this we get in trouble even talking about it like no no we can definitely talk about it and i i will gladly discuss it but there are people out there that may not like my answers and my opinion on it and there are no laws around it that's that's the crazy part in in a what i'd call quote-unquote free world when it comes to commerce there are no stipulations on paying to push ads for firearms facebook Instagram, Google, watch this podcast get shut down as I, as I get into this. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to get political, but they're what I'd call liberal run companies that just have taken a stance and will not allow it. There's nothing legal right. involved. So it, it's it, it, the corporation owns the, the law, not the country, the, or the, the guideline, I should say. Correct. And the fact that there are, what, four companies that own the full digital media landscape when it comes to the big players, they control it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you'll see these... 
uh, what I call conservative websites that are, are coming out and conservative platforms and social media platforms that a person will probably be able to do it, but they hold such a small percentage of the ad space mm-hmm. that if you want to get your, get your ads out there, I mean, oh, who uses anything outside of Google for most of their searches and, and not actually asking that question, but I mean, Google is the, the leader, right? Yeah. It's social massive, media. massive owner. Oh, uh, ownership between YouTube, yeah. Google, yeah. Amazon, more people are searching on Amazon. Where do they stand with it? They're against it as well. I They're can't sell it. any products that are firearm or I think I can sell knives, um, but not explosives or firearms or anything firearm related. Does Amazon United States sell firearms? No. Right. Because Walmart, may- would their number one competitor sells firearms. Yep. In that world, there are also certain companies, and I, I'm not sure if Walmart, and I'm going to go online and check after this, but there are companies that even though they sell firearms in store, for example, I'm going to throw out Canadian Tire all, all across Canada. It's the individual store owner's option if they choose to sell firearms, but Canadian Tire as a whole does not allow the promotion of firearms on the website. So you won't find them on when you go into their website. Right. And that, for those who aren't familiar, is Canada's, I believe it's its largest department store retailer of sporting goods and not really apparel, but pretty much everything else in the yeah. uh, you know home, outdoor, car, et cetera. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. They're owned by the Forzani group. So it is still privately held. And I guess, yep. and, and do you think, do you see almost like a, I don't know, a, an ambassadorship amongst yourselves and folks at Coralanes? Cause again, like I said, you guys are it's just so friendly and nobody would ever walk into that store who had a, who had a bias on firearms and maybe rightfully so maybe under, or understandably so at least, but, and not feel warm and welcome and dislike, Oh, these are, these are just the most incredible people and trying to an ambassadorship where yourselves and, and hunting and hunting and sporting goods stores and firearm stores around North America saying we have to, help change the experience, uh, the, the brand perception of both hunting and firearm ownership, separating them because firearm ownership doesn't necessarily mean you're hunting. You could be competitive shooter. You could just, yep. you know, like to go to the range every now and again. So there's a lot of people that don't understand or see firearm ownership as a sport. And there are, well, We've got our own sportsman's club and cities all across North America have their own gun and sportsman's club. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of members of each group that are into shooting firearms as a sport, a competitive sport and a hobby, whether it's shotguns doing clay, clay shooting um, or long range shooting or the three gun competitions or just Ipsic pistol. Like, Like there are so many different areas within the firearm world that it is a competitive sport. And it, one of the coolest things is taking someone who's had very little experience or none at all to the range with, uh, I won't say a truck full of guns, but with a half a dozen firearms <laughs> that they can test out my, my brother-in-law, not to throw him under the bus. He, he was, a he's from Halifax, Nova Scotia or Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And he, when he started dating my sister 25 years ago, said there will never be a farm in my house. And she's like, well, wait till you meet my family. That'll be an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time they flew out here, we, we took them to the range and showed him a safety start starting with safety. It all comes down to education. I mean, half the problems with firearms in the world today in the 
public sector to me come, comes down to a lack of knowledge or a lack of training or a lack of regard for the safety and safe handling. And I mean, call it redneck, but my parents got me my first little single shot 22 when I was seven. Now they didn't just hand it to me and say, go shoot squirrels. That, that wasn't how it was. It was always in a controlled environment with them. And it was considered a tool with a purpose. And there was no joking around. There was no funny business. I'd, I'd get slapped if I even thought about goofing around with it at all. So, I mean, I had a very deep respect for firearms and, and was taught and trained to use them safely and that they had, they had a purpose, but you had to respect not the danger, but the, the power that they come with. Yeah. So I had to, I, I'm a flip, I'm a flip flopper on it. Like I yeah. growing up, up until I was 32, you know, was completely in one side of the camp. And as, and as I get older, I realize that, and it seems, you know, we, we, we can, you know, not, it's not a bubble. We get it. What is our echo chambers of our echo chambers of our echo chambers. And we get so entrenched in seeing the world one way that it's really sickening um, to the health of our humanity, I find. And where else is there, you know, other than a more dramatic divide sometimes than firearm yep. ownership and hunting. For and sure. so I, I grew up on, on absolutely one side of that camp. Yep. I was slowly over a few year period introduced to the other world, other side. Yeah. And it was eye opening. And it's, it's just, it's one of those things where there's no way in which you and I can talk about it that someone who has their mind made up. I'm going to change it. You know, maybe exactly. you, you're a charming guy, but you know, it's like, <laughs> it's very, it's very entrenched belief systems. And I, I guess I'm a, I'm a contrarian or in the sense that I, I hope that more people just have the chance to meet people like yourself or visit stores like yours and just see the other side of it. That doesn't mean that there's not bad apples there's always bad apples and everything, but it's not so black and white. And I guess that's a segue into kind of back to, you know, your digital um, branding strategy and wanting to, to re logo the company. And, you know, did, did you have any mind in saying I am doing this, not just because I want to reach new customers because I want to get new sales, obviously you're a business owner, but I want to reach new customers because I want to educate and introduce something that's you, you believe in, you know, I believe is an incredible pastime and, and, you know, way of life to provide and, and sustain for your family that way and bring them into that world. Was that sort of, was that ever in how you were approaching bringing Cora Lanes out into the digital world and, and thus a, a much larger audience than Dawson Creek? There, there's so many levels to that and so many levels to the answer of that question. It's a very <laughs> complex question. And, and I'd say across the board, yes, all of a, I wanted to get into the business um, just for, to continue on with my grandfather's legacy. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's a, it's a dying industry. Well, to begin with, I would have said it, it, it's kind of a dying industry with the hunting world, but there's definitely been a resurgence with, positive role models like Steve Rinella, Remy Warren, a lot of big names that have done great things and shown the other side of hunting. Cause I would, I would fully agree that the whole view on hunting started or not started, took a native, a negative spin when Bambi's mom got shot yeah. and the Elmer Fudd era. And so 
hunters were seen as the uneducated backwoods guys shooting, drinking beer and shooting stop signs kind of thing in the backcountry. And, and that stigma, man, it, it went, it, it rang strong up until about 10 years ago, but they're like, I say with people like Steve Ranella, Cameron Haynes, Remy Warren, uh, the Joe Rogans, other than what he's going through right now, but they've put a very positive spin on hunting sustenance, and they bring up a lot of really good discussion points around trophy hunting and the amount of conversations that have come out of the half of, or the, the dozen pod, podcasts that we've had with a variety of people and then seeing what other people have to say. I've actually changed my opinion on that as well. And that's a cool thing about having these long form conversations like podcasts is you can dive pretty deep into topics like trophy hunting, which is so polarized you want to talk about hunting being polarized well let's talk about trophy hunting and take it to that next level i had this conversation with my cousin who i'm I'm filming the project with um, the film and uh i i'm still i'm still trying to get my head around it so help me understand it (laughs) yeah for sure Um, well help me understand the the argument as you've heard it it doesn't have to be your opinion obviously yep and I'm going to digress just a little bit here, but have you seen stars in the sky, a hunting story? I haven't. It's on Netflix. It's a Steve Rennell film. And it's, it's a bit of a documentary that it, it, the whole movie opens. I just watched it about two weeks ago. Cause someone said, Hey, you, you should check this out. And it opens with, uh, we'll say a vegan or a vegetarian at one of his book readings, small group, 20 people in the audience listening. And this guy basically says, how can you promote uh, the killing of animals when you are taking a life. How do you justify that? And and Steve started with, well, how do you train a wolf not to hunt? We've been hunting longer than we haven't been hunting. And then he and then the, the whole show spins off of that one question. And and, and it, they did an excellent job with the people they interviewed on both sides and had what I'd call is a long form discussion on it. Of course, with this with the skew of hunting is is necessary. If, if I can just interject there, I, I read that in um, not not in his book, but in I, I don't know the author, but it's Buck Buck Moose, the cookbook. Yep. And he was discussing that uh, some anthropologists believe that our cognitive ability as human beings was born in the hunt, the, the planning, the execution alongside Servids, if I'm saying that right, moose, elk, deer, um, they cave drawings from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago that this hunt, the idea of the hunt has been with us, as you said, forever. We evolved as a species alongside this activity. And, you know, I guess the vegans argument is, well, that was because they didn't have, you know, cultivation of farming, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll pass that back to you now and, and say, <laughs> what do you want to do with that? <laughs> that's, that's another loaded point. If you want to get into the cultivation of mm-hmm. uh, beans, for example, um, how many creatures die to, to produce an acre of, of, of any produce, really? You think of a tractor or even if you go old school meth- methods of farming, you're still killing off tens, if not hundreds of, of mice and voles and, and other creatures and the herbicides and pesticides that, that are used to think that we can consume anything that isn't naturally growing on its own without killing other species is, is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. No matter what 
you choose to eat. Something has died so you can eat that. So to me, that comes down to it's, it's part of the circle of life. Uh, Hakuna Matata, we could get go down that path, but it's, 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 I won't say it's necessary to kill animals, but it's to kill one elk. Like I did this fall and my family of four will live off that one animal for the next two years. Mm-hmm. Whereas how many hundreds of animals are dying every time they plant another crop. So mm-hmm. if, if we look at deaths per ounce of food consumed, I've actually killed fewer animals, but that, that that's definitely a up for debate and up for discussion. And that's not really the, the path that I'd like to take. I just, I just see we're all on this earth and, and things will die so we can all consume it. And it's really tough. If you want to talk the, the vegan lifestyle, it's tough to con- consume enough products to be healthy at an affordable rate compared to eating meat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, in, in, unless you're a high roller, the amount of beans and spinach and things that you would have to buy, you'd, you'd, I would go broke to try and live that lifestyle to have the same amount of protein and vitamins and everything that you get from chicken, steak, and fish. I mean, I, I absolutely love fishing and going out and catching my own fish and, and living off that for the next year too, from a three-day fishing trip. It's, I also find it interesting to have the discussion with people around that are against hunting, but will go to Safeway and pick up their steaks off the shelf. And right. to get into that discussion on, okay, well, you'd rather pay someone to do the dirty work where I've gotten in and I've, I've experienced it. I mean, hunting is a blast. I really enjoy getting out and hunting, but hunting isn't pulling the trigger on an animal. Hunting is learning the habitat. It's getting out, it's spending the time, it's hiking, it's putting on the miles, seeing different parts of, of our beautiful backyard we have right here and spending time with amazing friends and family that share the same passions. To me, that's what the hunt is. And then the stock, you get in on animals, you bugle in that bull elk, and you want to talk about unbelievable excitement when a bull elk is screaming at you and coming in because you were cow calling it and you've covered yourself in, in, in a urine or urine substitute that they're coming in, they're smelling you and you've managed to outsmart them to bring them in. And I mean, yes, technology's come a long way. Some people will argue, well, you should just have a bow and arrow and, 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 and a lambskin to wear to go out and do it. Well, yes, technology has made it easier for sure. But the excitement when a bull is screaming, and I mean, this season, the Friday night, we bugled in seven bulls and I didn't shoot mine until Sunday on two different days of hunting. But that Friday night and filming screaming bulls around us, two winded us, they hiked around behind us and, and they wouldn't quite come out to where we could see them. But again, that the high-fiving with the buddy of mine that I was hunting with, just because we could call them in within a hundred yards and had them beating up trees and stuff is, is such a cool experience. And you let them go. They, or they're, or they're not legal. You've got your binoculars on them. You see, they don't have enough points to be legal. And it's just an absolute amazing time. Now, when I line up my crosshairs on a a, a legal bull and pull the trigger, there's always that uh, moment of remorse and the understanding that I've taken a life and please Lord, let it have let it die very quickly that that was an ethical shot placement. There's all that stress of pulling the trigger that I want it to drop instantly and have the most humane death possible. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to track this. And I mean, a poor shot, you might track an animal for an hour or two. And so I really push all hunters, make sure you're as close as you can take that ethical shot, do what you can to. So there's very little to no suffering. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and when you pull that trigger, there's, there's a remorseful period that you just took a life. Well, I, I, when I, when I, I've only ever successfully hunted one animal, I've nope. been on more hunts. I, I weeped, nope. I weeped and it was instantaneous and it was not in, I had no idea it would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is something that I've seen across every you know, hunt that I've been on with every person is that there is a deep respect yep. and there's, again, I, you know, I'm not, there's no trying to convince you and I are just sharing our, our, our stories. And there's, there's this incredible sense of ownership in, I did all the work to find, to, to bring this food into my, into my family, sometimes yep. friends, not only did you do the work of hunting it, there is an astronomical amount of work uh, field dressing, butchering. I did the whole thing with my cousin. I spent after the hunt, I spent four more days in Prince George. We even packaged the meat, um, at, alongside the butcher where yep. it went into all the little Ziploc bags. Yep. We labeled them all. The, the satisfaction as a human being, not that an animal is dead, that you did all of those things to put food on your table. Yep. There is almost nothing like it. Growing our garden here, where we have a we have a vegetable garden, and you get your food from the earth that you grew. That is also a very satisfying feeling. Yep. They're both satisfying, far more than your point of just going to a McDonald's drive-through or, you know, thinking that you got something you know that was ethically and sustainably grown and harvested in a grocery store. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a different. It's it's a feeling that is indescribable until you have been through the experience and it is like in your bones, the most human experience, one of the most human experiences I've ever had on this planet is, is I just did something that provided sustenance for my family for a year. And it was a lot of freaking work. And and like you said, I, I like how you put it. The work begins when you pull the trigger. That's not the end of the hunt. That's when the work begins. And I could vividly tell you, every single big game animal I've, I've shot. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not your, I go out and I, I stack five animals in my freezer every season. Cause I can buy a tag for them. No, I, I go with the amount of, I'll, I'll say work that I've taken on getting back into the business. Doesn't leave me a lot of play time to go and do this, the hobby sport slash sport mm-hmm. that I got into. Um, so I, I don't get out and hunt the whole fall because that's my busy time. I'm here working and going to buying shows and dealing with clients and customers and, and TV shows that are coming through. We've got a couple more coming up this fall that we're just trying to line up that we'll be doing some guiding and stuff with them as well. But I mean, that's, that's busy time for me. So like Greg and I disappeared into the mountains to go chase sheep, uh, the last, well, in, in, in October, because by then the chaos early season hunting is, is wrapped up and it's just the last few people still going out there. So we disappeared into the mountains and chase critters then, but, but yeah, the, the career I got into doesn't leave me a ton of time to hunt and get out there, but I could tell you every animal I've pulled the trigger. I could tell you the vivid story from beginning to end on it. It doesn't get, I won't say it doesn't get easier, but the, your first hunt is going to be just as memorable as your next hunt. And then the one after that, and the one after that, every animal you harvest will have its own vivid memory and, and have a different place in your heart. And then you are a hundred percent correct with when you fill your freezer with meat 
And I do the same thing. I don't actually take my game to the butchers anymore. We harvest or we process it ourselves. I've got a couple of friends with meat coolers uh, that they built a shed in the backyard. They insulated it and they've got doors. So you just throw them a little, little cash if they're willing to accept it for the electricity to get that yeah. thing running. So when you harvest it you take it to their place, you hang it for four or five days because meat is normally supposed to cure for a few days before you fully process it. Mm-hmm. And then I've got rolls of paper and, and baggies and we do all the processing ourselves and uh, make an evening of it. There were six of us processing my elk till two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, five nights after, after I pulled the trigger on it, there are late nights involved. <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's all part of the experience with awesome people. Absolutely. And there is this community aspect where when you talk about remembering the stories, yep. like I remember the stories of, the, the not like you said, not just the hunt, the whole process yep. of, of it from start to finish till I had completed everything and I was exhausted and bagged and uh, and just wanted to snuggle up with my wife. But <laughs> the uh, then you remember these stories and they're the stories you share and reminds me of I, I don't want to say ancient times, but like old, old times when sitting around a fire and communicating with each other, sharing stories. Yep. Is a lost, I don't want to call it an art. It's a lost pastime of, mm-hmm. of humans. You know, we watch Netflix and we, we chat on messengers and, and social media comments and DMs, you know, and maybe Zoom calls or, or whatnot, but I'm not really sharing story, at least in my life. There's not a lot yep. of story sharing. And when I, I had the opportunity to do a little hunting, that was one of the first things I noticed was every single person was a storyteller. Yep. They had stories they wanted to share. It's almost yep. like passing on wisdom. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but it, it, it just makes you feel like a human being again. Yeah. That you're part of, and, sorry. That, that, oh, no problem. That was a big part of that stars in the sky. Steve Rinella's movie was talking about going back in time. You look at, a lot of the the constellations are based off hunts and people brand or branded named this constellation as this guy with a spear hunting that like, and, and there were always stories. And that's where the whole title stars in the sky came from. And he then got into that. What was it? I want, I want to say lyrical um, tradition was quite often done around the fire and about hunting stories and that's how that's how humans became such good hunters and they passed on their knowledge around the campfire sharing their wisdom and knowledge and like you say it doesn't seem to happen nearly as much today as it used to but every time i go on more than a one day hunt by myself those evenings when you come back to camp are phenomenal and you'll have a group of guys that may have never met each other before like our sheep hunt that we went on there came back without an animal but i wouldn't trade the experience for the world because the people that I spent the time with and we'd come back to base camp and have supper and have a couple drinks in the evening around the fire and, and be up laughing at each other and sharing stories, whether they're hunting related or not, or just yeah. way better than turning on a TV, spending that way time better. talking. So do yeah. you got, do you got one for me? Uh, <laughs> my terrible English. That, I mean, specifically, cause I have had confession. I have had nightmares about grizzly bears yep. my whole life. Ever, well, in my whole life, I read a book called the bears embrace when I was a, a young 
I don't know, a probably young teenager. And it was about a, yeah. a lady who was hiking in Waterton Lakes National Park, that which is right on, it's, it touches Glacier National Park in the United States. It's like the International Peace Park. So it's in the southern, southwest corner of Alberta. Yep. Stunning. And she stumbled across a grizzly bear that had a fresh kill. Yep. There was that bear's kill or not. I don't know, but, and it attacked her and it ruined her life. Um, because of the, the pain of recovery and the headaches and the trauma. And ever since that moment, every single time I've headed, headed into the bush, whether it was just for a hike, like a long hike, yeah. the, the week before I start getting nightmares. And so I got to ask if you have a grizzly bear story of any kind that would help feed my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple. Um, <laughs> On a personal experience, I haven't had any real negative encounters with grizzly bears. I've come across a fresh kill while out elk hunting and just hiking through an area and come around a little bend through some thick trees and into a bit of a clearing. And there's a mound and something has pulled all of the dirt into a hill and a a putrid smell. Well, if you get to where I was at that moment, you're screwed because there's probably a grizzly watching you at that point because anytime they find a dead animal or kill an animal, they want it to rot more. So they bury it and then they come back and feast on it or they'll chew on it if they're really hungry and even fall asleep on top of that mound. So nothing else gets it, but they are overly protective of kills. And so, I mean, when I came into that spot, I normally don't hike with my gun loaded, but when I came on that spot, I'm, I'm 20 feet from the mound and there's probably a grizzly watching me. So you, I put one in the chamber safety off because I expect to have to pull that trigger as I, you don't back out of there because you want to be looking with the direction you're walking, but you got to be looking in every direction. I've had a couple instances where we're back to back walking out of an area because you came into an area area you shouldn't be in because there's a kill there. I want to say episode seven of our hunt hard talk free with Robbie Austin. And then episode, I don't even want to say what number it is. Chris Ayers are two of my, well, Robbie's a customer and become a friend of mine that lives here in Dawson who has one of the most harrowing, bone chilling uh, stories about being mauled by a grizzly bear while out on a sheep hunt with a group of six or eight of them went out there and four of them headed back down to, to the truck, had to hike out and ride the horses out to the truck. And uh, two of them stayed up Robbie and Chris, cause they just spotted rams. So they're like, we're going to stay an extra day or two to hopefully harvest a ram. And after successfully harvesting Chris's first ram, they're hiking out. And they, they talk about the fatal flaws, the fatal errors that they make. The first one was they weren't walking side by side. Chris couldn't keep up with Robbie. Robbie has long legs. So Robbie was 40 yards ahead of Chris. And as they're hiking out with meat on their backs, Chris says, Hey, Robbie, do you hear that? And Robbie turns and looks at Chris behind him and he can see up the hill. They're hiking down three grizzlies at a full out run towards them and it's the the sow the big sow's elbows in her chest as she's running just as they're running and and robbie yells there's a bear get your gun and so they both drop their packs fatal flaw number two is they had their guns strapped to their packs and this is a phenomenal discussion point i have with so many customers going into the mountains that a lot of packs have spots that you put your gun in and strap it down so it doesn't fall off or get hung up on trees that's how mine was so if a bear 
if a bear comes at you, how do you get your gun quickly? Oh, I, <laughs> I <laughs> I'm I'm new to I'm new to all of this, Aaron. You yep. know this. So like... <laughs> so food for thought for your next mountain hunt or next adventure. And I'll I'll, I'll give you some guidance on on how to avoid that too. But um, they both drop their packs. They're trying to pull their guns off, and the mother bear mauls Chris, and the two cubs run off into the bush. And when I say cubs, they're big, two three hundred pound cubs. But they disappear into the bush while the sow is just mauling Chris, and he's screaming. Robbie gets his gun off his pack. It takes him five, six, seven seconds. Lines up. He says, "I'm calm, cool, collect. Line up. Pull the trigger. Click." Looks at his gun. The magazine had fallen out of his gun, and he's panicked to get it off the pack. And now he can't find his mag. So he's got no ammo. So he says, now I go into panic mode as I'm tearing apart my backpack, digging oh for because I know God. I've got a second it, mag. Oh my gosh. And he says, Chris is just screaming, screaming, screaming as the bear's mauling him. And he says, I get my second mag. I slam it in the bottom of the gun. I line up on, uh, on the bear, but I'm all over the place. I can't hold on the bear. And I'm afraid of shooting my friend who's being oh. mauled by the bear. So he yells a couple expletives at the bear at 40 yards <sighs> and she turns, takes one, one lunge. He gets a shot off. He cycles a second one into it and she's on top of him and he's got the gun in one hand, a rifle like at her chest, face, neck. He's not really sure and pull, gets a second shot off and she's on him mauling him now. And oh so God. he's pinned down with kind of folded in half with his head at his knees and she's got her bottom jaw, her bottom teeth under his jaw and her, her top teeth are grinding his skull. And he, all he, he says, all I can think of is I thought this would have been more painful and he's feeling the grind of, her oh teeth man. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and, and so, I mean, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but phenomenal podcast. It was one of the top five podcasts that month when it launched in Canada and I wish I had a better mic running that day. My main mic crap. So I had a, a second backup mic. So it's tinny and I, I feel terrible because it's such a phenomenal story, but um, it ended up, he, he had a stroke because her bottom jaw punctured his artery in his, in his throat. And he's got a, he's today got a scar from his chest up his neck behind his ear and up on top of his head from her ripping at him, but she disappeared. So she chewed on him for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, maybe and disappeared. And He's laying there thinking Chris is dead because he stopped making noise while he was getting mauled and she's left me. I think I'm okay. He goes to sit up and he has no use of the left side of his body because of this little air bubble that went in and, and he stroked out. He said, I couldn't hold my abs and lower back muscles to sit up. He says, every time I'd go to push myself up with my one good arm, I'd fall over because I had no core strength. And so he's, we have one in reach. And it's on the other guy, 40 yards from me through um, a burn. So lots of deadfall and burnt trees. And he's like, I can't climb over to him. I can't even message out to get help. I'm going to die here on the mountain. And that so deadfall this, is no joke. Like, no, that deadfall is unbelievable terrain. That, as a fully operational human being, I'd yeah. hike through that. It sucks. So to think you don't have use of half your body to try and crawl through that would just be brutal. So, I mean, in his story, he, Chris was actually okay. He was shredded from wrist to elbow because he had his mouth or his, his arm in the bear's mouth while she was shredding it. And he was torn up his, we'll call it his, uh, his skull flap was down over his no, face. No, no. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, I, 
I won't tell a whole lot more, but they well, survived. They got to check it out in your podcast. Put it in the and notes. They, they both came out and told their story. Robbie, because he lives here, came in first. And two months later, Chris came up for an elk hunt. And, uh, and he came in and did a podcast with us too. So their stories are so different about the exact same incident, about what they remember. Phenomenal. Absolutely mm. amazing. That being said, PTSD and, and how they both dealt with it was very different. Robbie says just about every night, it's been five years. He's still the, the, the bear remains with him and it's in his dreams just about every night at some point, but it's not threatening, but it's there. He says, I'll be dreaming about something. And then there's just happens to be a bear sitting in the corner of the room. Almost so like he a says, spirit guide relationship now. Is that, would that be fair to say or not? No, possibly, yeah. possibly. Whereas Chris full on PTSD night terrors, terrified of uh, when the dreams come, it's a, it's reminding him of what went down and he's just horrified. They got so to do psilocybin both- and, uh, get into some of those trials because yeah. or, or MDMA in some MDMA, of those trials yeah. is really working for PTSD. Yeah. Um, I don't know in Canada where that is, but in the States, I know there's lots of accessibility. Okay. Good. So yeah. Gosh. I mean, in, in my 40 years on this earth, I've only ever had one incident where the trigger had to be pulled on a bear. Didn't shoot the bear shot the ground between us. Cause it was coming at us. And I mean, a problem bear, when, you know, it's a problem when it's not making eye contact and it's not checking you out. It's looking away from you, but walking straight towards you. It's coming. And so, I mean, you yell at it, you make noises, you throw rocks and they'll just keep so quite often. They pick up the pace when you really ramp it up, but they they'll just keep looking side to side, but they'll walk straight towards you. And you know, that's a problem. I mean, we were, fishing on the side of a riverbank and my grandfather grandpa jack from here from Corlanes from the 60s he uh loved fishing absolutely loved fishing and he'd take us out any chance he could get my sister and i and my dad and my mom like we that those were always family outings but we were in the pine pass and we're fishing on one side and a black bear comes out on the other side of the river and and grandpa called every bear charlie and so he's like hey charlie and yeah. the black bear <laughs> is just pacing back and forth, goes downstream 50, 60 yards and swims across and disappears into the bush on our side. Okay, everybody start packing up your fishing gear. And it just walked out towards us and came straight at us and just kind of did that whole, I'm not really here. And so my dad ended up having to shoot, shoot the ground between it, between us and it, that scared it away. But you get out of there because that bear is either hungry or looking for something. So, and I mean, I have a lot of respect for animals in their backyard and it's, they are carnivore, well, omnivores, but they're meat eaters and they're just following their instincts. I don't, I don't blame a bear yeah, yeah. For, for, for wanting to, to eat. So, so no, I, I respect it and I'll, I'll leave and we'll go find our, another spot to fish. So if you can, but I mean, in my entire life, I pack it. If I'm in the back country, I'm packing a shotgun and my wife packs bear spray and we've never had to use it. Yeah. That was my dad pulling the trigger at that point. And it's just like my irrational fear of sharks. If I'm in the ocean, you look at the number of people that swim and surf and whatever else in the ocean and what percentages of attacks are there. But anytime there is an attack, it's sensationalized. Yeah. And so do we go and kill every shark in the ocean because of that attack? You don't blame the shark. I don't blame the shark. I don't so. blame the shark either or the bear. No, it's you're absolutely yeah. right, man. That's a, that's, See, it's, well, one thing that's really interesting is I, when you were telling me that, and now I think of it, when my dog 
is up to mischief. It does that, like looking side to side. Doesn't want to make eye contact. Doesn't want to make eye contact. And I never, like, obviously it's a dog. It's not doing anything violent, but dangerous, but it's up to no good. And now, man, (laughs) (laughs) I, when I was just to to beat it to death, like uh, I was up in, uh, well, Pine Pass area. Yep. Um, and that for those is between Prince George, the highway between Prince George and Dawson Creek, Northern BC. And we were, we were sleeping in a tent. We'd, we'd hiked up the side of a mountain and just grizzly bear scat everywhere. There was grizzly, there was moose droppings on grizzly bear scat. Like it was like, <laughs> you could not be in a wilder place, but you didn't yep. see anything. And, and we got up into the Alpine and in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm, I'm the hell is that smell? And I can't, I can't even comprehend how stinky it is. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just the most foul smell. And I'm in a tent and a two man tent with three guys. So maybe that, you know, you're like, (laughs) maybe that's it. (laughs) But the, uh, but I want to say an hour, are you pass back out? Our lady wake back up. I still smell it. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. So in the morning, I asked my cousin, who's an avid outdoorsman, did you smell that last night? He's like, I did smell that last night. And we looked everywhere and there was no sign of grizzly, like nothing destroyed in our camp. Yeah. No piles of fresh scat within three, 200, 300 yards. Uh, down in the valley below where we were, there was in, um, in a in a in a, a meadow, there was lots of uh, depressions where, but that would that would have been four kilometers away. Yeah, and so I, I I would say that if that was a bear, that's the closest I've ever been to a grizzly yeah. in a, in that situation. But there's no. It it would be neat if more people would, and it it doesn't make sense to do this, but would set up trail cameras yeah. outside their tents because I think bears are very prevalent at coming through people's camps. They're checking out what's there. They'll sniff around. They they check things out. I mean, uh, I've had them on my porch at, at a cabin in the Pine Pass. Uh, and when I say cabin, I mean just a little old 1960s A-frame with no insulation mm-hmm. that my grandfather bought off Trapper back in the 60s or 70s. Um, that's still in the family today. But we've had them on the deck when we come out in the morning because they're just checking out. There's new smells. There's new things. We try not to leave garbage or anything like that out. But they're curious. Mm-hmm. And so I, if people set up trail cams to watch their tent, I bet you'd see all kinds of animals close by. We, we want to do that in the film. Uh, we didn't, you know, we, we were on a pretty tight budget in the first episode, but yep. we definitely want to bring some trail cams. One of the, as we, as we continue on here. Yeah. And I, this is kind of a random jumping back to the digitization and, um, of things, but do you see w- where the you know, firearms and or hunting and hunting stores play in the new, you know, Web three metaverse NFTs? Is there any discussions happening where it's like, well, we had to, you know, twenty years ago we weren't discussing online, and now we are, and we're in where we take that, or is it too early? No, we're, we're there. I mean, the guy that I go for coffee with every couple of weeks, um, who is deep in the tech world, um, 
Gordon Evans is his name, and he owns VRG Interactive, a company based out of Toronto. And I'm fortunate enough to have partnered with him on ballistics, and he did all the tech work, him and his team, and physicists did all the tech work to build the software for us. But um, his his better half, Ayla, she owns a naturopath clinic here in Dawson, so he spends a lot of time up here. So if he's around, we'll go for coffee and discuss these things. So, I mean, we, we've discussed in, investing in NFTs, but more than that, the real estate, the digital real estate, and which metaverse does one invest in for commerce pur- purposes? Mm-hmm. As of right now, I, I've looked at a bunch of properties, as silly as that sounds, within the different metaverses that are out there and the price points on them with the thought that that will be the future virtual store. Everything I have in my building here will be for sale within that store. And if people, it, again, it sounds so out there. It sounds so matrix, so <laughs> so far in the, in the future, but the future is now. And why not be one of the first ones to get into the digital marketing world within the metaverse? Again, if those companies don't try and control it and not allow me to turn that property into a, a, a firearm store. Right. A hunting, fishing, camping, not just solely firearms, but if it sells firearms, they may say no. So, I mean, navigating uncharted waters right now when it comes to digital marketing in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. And would there be a component of education, wilderness, uh, not survival, but where the environment is not just the store, but there's more experiences that you can have in the place that you choose I would hope so. Yeah, I, I, I would hope so. And again, that's all this. What does it look like? But it, it's almost counterproductive to say we need outdoor adventure in the metaverse. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I'd rather be attacked by a grizzly bear in the metaverse. But <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. I mean, I, I I'd say the you need to have the digital. We'll call it the immersive 3D experience of being in the Rocky mountains of being at Canuso falls of being at all these beautiful places. And you can put on your headset and you can experience those sorts of things. You could do some digital target practicing, whether it's with a bow, with a gun, whatever those, those sorts of immersive games already exist. Now you, you throw the the VR headset into that and it makes it just a phenomenal experience. So to me, it would become, you, 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 you'd have to gamify it. You'd have to have a game, inside of it that people would want to go to and maybe you'd end up the prizes you win as you play those games and while you're playing those games you're seeing ads which again it has to be monetized that's what it comes down to but maybe part companies that i sell their products will help pay for ads in the game that i partner with to have in my store and the more people that are loving that game playing it in the core lanes version of not the core lanes version of the metaverse but in our building within the metaverse there will be money money made off that. And then the prizes that people win would be discounts off products if they actually want to order one or something like that. You yep. use this product within that game you played. Do you want the real thing? Here's a 20% off coupon because you got third place out of everyone that's like, I don't know. It's endless. The possibilities are, are huge. And I don't want to write it off as a lot of people do thinking that oh, this is just, it, it's a flash in the pan. Well, we thought that about the internet. I was just watching a um, mm-hmm. a bit of a documentary on where the internet's come from and how all the news articles saying, yeah, it's not for everybody. It's a flash in the pan. Everyone's jumping on board, but it'll be done in a couple of years. Like now it's, it is 
the matrix. <laughs> although, although some people should have taken that advice because the internet shouldn't be for everybody. <laughs> from from I what agree. I can tell today, yep. <laughs> some, <laughs> some people should have just said skip. And and yep. you're right. I mean, it's it's super early days, and and that's where the investments that we make into things like this have to be. We have to have. You have to have. It's highly risky. You have to be able to you know, be prepared to to lose it or invest more as things modify and change, yep. and the you know, platforms yep. go away and some stay. And you know, there's it's it's very wild west. Yep. Um, just like cryptocurrency, do we want like to start crypto. accepting crypto at mm-hmm. our store? And that's that's a discussion we're having right now. Is do we mm-hmm. set up a wallet just for core lanes in crypto and just keep that money as an investment in the digital market? Yeah. It it's. It's so funny because these, you know, we're talking about two, we're talking about sitting around a campfire and the nostalgia of storytelling yeah. and how important it feels to us. We're talking about crypto, bit, bit crypto and, hunt, <laughs> and hunting in the metaverse. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, sometimes I just, I got to pinch myself and the end. And I just, you know, I know for myself, I'll never feel clarity in the metaverse, but I'll always, I'll always feel it in the outdoors. Yeah, it will. You you can't recreate that. The yeah. smells, the sounds, the feeling. To me, and it sounds silly. The smell of being in the outdoors is one of my favorite things. The fresh, the dew, mm-hmm. the air. You you can't recreate that in in a VR world. I mean, it, this to me, this all comes back to unplug. We need to unplug more. We need to get out of the digital world. But you can't miss out a marketing opportunity as a business. Yeah, uh, with, with the metaverse. We never did loop back to trophy hunting. Uh, I I had a note here. Okay. Okay. But I had, I had, I had written it off. So I'm glad okay. you brought it up. <laughs> okay. I think it's a phenomenal jumping off point for discussions and I'm going to flip the table on you here. And I want to, I, I want you to tell me your opinion on trophy hunting. <laughs> I'm already scared that I've talked about <laughs> hunting in general. <laughs> <laughs> Only because people are so mean and I'm so sensitive, but, um, <laughs> and, and the thing that I don't like about it is, and everyone talks about it is there's no nuance. There's no, there's no acceptance of the exploration of something and trying to understand it better, which is what I'm doing, which is yep. segueing into trophy hunting. And the only, the only, so out the gates to me, I have a really hard time with it. Yep. Because it's not generally food in your freezer, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna scapegoat a little bit. But what I'm gonna say is that uh, the the only way that it's been explained to me logically is by a very famous in British Columbia hunter trapper named Bernard McKay. Bernard's written three books. He's got, I mean, he's been trapping for fifty years. He's eighty, and he's still, mm-hmm. still. He's 80, lift an 80 pound rock over his head or so the legend goes. Yeah. And he still works all his trap lines and he still, you know, he still hunts and he's just, he's just an interesting guy. And obviously, again, if you're, if you think that that's inhumane, you're not going to think he's very interesting, but when you're somebody who's built a life from nothing and, and fed your family for you know years and, and, and done it all, literally built your home, your property, everything. Yep. by hand. Yep. You know, I think that there's something to be looked at there. Yep. And he explained to me, cause I, we actually interviewed him in the film. 
that predators, the predator count. So we, we do a, an amazing job of conservation in this, in this province, uh, conservation being, you know, the concert, the, the tagging system, the lottery system that says you are, or are not allowed to hunt this species. Here are the time frames. here is like, you know, how many times does it have what, you know, what size it is, what, where it's open, you can hunt freely where it's not. Um, it's an, it's simple and it's incredibly complex and clearly they do a very good job because there's an, there's a very healthy, um, population of animals in this province. And there's also a lot of hunters. So the fact yep. that there's a healthy population and there's a lot of hunters tells you that they're, they're doing a good job managing, managing those habitats and those animal <laughs> populations. What is at an all time high, as I understand it is the wolf Wolverine and grizzly bear and black bear populations. Yep. Predator populations are through the predator roof right populations yep. are through the roof. Right. Yep. And you have, you know, you have those predators uh, always on the lookout for food. And, you know, you, you blame, you blame a hunter for going into a bear's habitat when we build homes up into the mountains on Whistler and Coquitlam and, and all yep. of their habitat here, which creates problematic situations in many ways. Yep. And, and so his, his explanation was, you know, eventually you, you will have a cycle of death within the predator population because there's so many predators that they will eat and kill all the, the cervids. Again, I hope I'm saying that right. The most, the, Ung the ungulates. Un ungulates, ungulates is the yep. other one. What, am, what is a cervid? What, why am I are, are you thinking like the split? I might be cloven. I might or... be I, again, I'm new to this. So ungulates is the right word. And so that population depre um, uh, lessens and then the predator pro population begins to starve off themselves. Yeah. And so there is an argument to be made. Of course, nature will take care of itself one way or another. I just described it. They eat all the prey and then the predators starve and yeah. the, the cycle begins again. Um, and you can decide whether or not you think it's right for that bear to starve in the wild because, you know, they ate all the, the moose or the deer. And so his, his view was that it's, it's, it's okay to work within the confines of conservation when you're dealing with predators so that an equilibrium is met inside, you know, that, that region or that area. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and that's, and you know, again, not having gone too far past it, I, I can say that I understood his point yep. um, and how he described it. Is that how you've thought about it? Or I would agree with everything you said, but I'm going to go a little deeper and look okay. at trophy hunting of even ungulates uh, and other animals in ah, the things okay. we talk about as well. Another thing, I, I'm scribbling down a few notes because you bring up a lot of good points and other discussion points when you talk about predator populations. And um, as the ungulates rise or, or decline and the predators rise, one of the things that's come up in, again, it was on another podcast that we did with some amazing men that spent their time as guides and outfitters up north. Uh, they were talking about the need for more controlled burns. We need to help with right. the habitat as well. And when, when I look at northern BC, uh, I talked to my uncles who used to spend all the time in the 80s and early 90s up hunting 
and there would be elk populations in the two to 300 elk in a herd that you'd see while hiking or riverboating or whatever, and just massive elk populations, and you'd see a few wolves. Whereas today, you see 60, 80, 100, up to 200 wolves in the herd, and you'll see four or five or six elk. And we're, like you say, we're at a high predator population, but we no longer have the habitat and food for the ungulates up there that these gentlemen even accredited, the First Nations have been doing the controlled burns forever prior to us getting our fingers involved with government and everything like that and, and trying to control populations is they did what they had to do because they knew it was good for the numbers. And so along the riverbanks, we need to have some big fires. And I mean, forest fires are not a bad thing because so much regrowth occurs. And then the vegetation that these ungulates like to eat regrows. And, and there's so, so many positive things that come out of a, a burn that we need to help out with that. And now it's, it's against the law for me to go up there and light a forest fire, but with the hunting and trapping associations, BC wildlife federation, one of the best groups that I'm, we support regularly is the wild sheep society of BC because they focus on mineralization and burns as well. Um, just to allow ungulates to, to, to thrive, but they're focused more on the mountaintops specifically for sheep. We need to do the same thing for the moose, elk and deer on the flats along the sides of rivers in these untouched areas, because it, it gets so overgrown and so thick that it pushes them out and it pushes their vegetation that they eat out of those areas too. So there's things we could do to help aside from just culling the, the, the wolf herds and stuff too. But that's, that's a whole discussion we could have with biologists and stuff. And it'd be very interesting to get into. Well, they, uh, they say, uh, yeah, and I'll let you go back to the trophy hunt because we do got to close that loop. But just on the burn side of it in British Columbia, you know, my I have relatives who are firefighters who have gone up and fought, you know, for months on end these summer fires. Yeah, there a lot of it, again, is is population increase and yep. human error that's causing the fires. And to your point, if there was better maintenance on the burns ahead of these things. You know, not to oversimplify it like Donald Trump says, where you just got to go in and rake the forest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, or allegedly he said that, but you know, it's like, we have to, we have to think that again, we're playing a part in that we're camping more. There's more of us camping. There's more tourists. We're going farther. We're sprawling farther into these areas and we're building more. And because, you know, maybe it's a, whatever it is, you had a fire, you smoked a joint, whatever it was, you know, you flicked a cigarette butt out of the car and next thing you know, you know, something that wasn't intended to burn, burnt. So yep. I digress back to bring it home, Aaron, <laughs> bring it home. Let's do it. So to get back to the whole trophy hunting and what people see trophy hunting and the negative ramifications that it has, we had on Nathan Austin, who is a guide and outfitter for Yukon Peak Outfitters, and they focus on sheep mainly, but you can do a grizzly bear hunt. You can do a caribou hunt. There's a variety that you can do up there, but, but they're known for, for sheep hunting. And we were talking about the size of animals and, and I straight up asked him, what, what are your thoughts on trophy hunting? And he says, I strongly support it. And I, I guess a person's definition of trophy hunting is where it falls apart, where it gets a little shaky. Anyone that's shooting what I'd call trophies to hang on the wall. When I think of trophy hunting around here, a lot of hunters will pass up on the the young or immature bulls and bucks because they're waiting for a bigger one. Now his, his main point was those young and immature bucks and, and, and the, the mid-sized bucks, let's say, well, he was focusing on sheep. So let's talk about the six to 
eight-year-old sheep are prime breeders. They're the ones that are repopulating. When you get the big, ugly, old rams that are in their 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, they're no longer contributing, I don't want to say to society, but they're no, no longer contributing to the herd. And he says, we have to be careful not to take out all those uh, seven, eight-year-old rams because they're the ones that are passing the genetics on. And so they really do focus on trying to take the older ones. And it also coincides, that's what someone likes to have on their wall better. But again, the meat is all taken and eaten and processed. It just comes down to helping you choose which animal you harvest. And so someone who has shot a four-point mule deer and is now looking for that massive 200-inch muley to throw up on the wall and passes over 20 other bucks that you or I may have shot just because we just want to fill the freezer. Well, we're actually deteriorating the, the the population that's actually reproducing as opposed to that grandpa that's no longer contributing. And so that kind of gave me a different perspective on the thought of trophy mm-hmm. hunting. And yeah. And, it, and so and, I, sorry, no, I was just going to say, I like to have those discussions with people that, that, if they're pro hunting, but anti-trophy hunting, well, what's your definition of trophy hunting is what it comes down to, I guess. And I just want to live in a world where we can have the conversation mm-hmm. and not hate each other. Yeah. Um, and, and understand that we also, we may completely disagree with each other, but that doesn't mean one is more right than the other. You know, yeah. we, we, it's a complex you know, you, the way you just describe it, it's incredibly complex. If you decide to look at, say, we are hunters as, as, as a humankind. And if we are going to be hunters, how do we be the best, most responsible conservation minded hunters possible? Yeah. And, and the other side of it is, is leave it, leave it alone. It's yep. completely unethical and I do not agree. And therefore nothing you're going to say about population control will ever sit well with me. And that's, you know, that's, it's, Fair too, in the sense that I'm not going to say they, you know, somebody cannot have that opinion. It's, yeah, it's theirs, and and so it, it it's it's just hard. It's 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 a complex thing to discuss, and it's on it. It feels icky to to know that somebody's you know not really not going to like it, and yeah. <laughs> you just kind of <laughs> you just gotta you just gotta carry on and 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 do the best you can with it. But I, I cannot help but think of like one of the very first South Park episodes. I ever saw where it were Stan or whatever. Kyle has the hunting uncle. It's coming straight for us. That one. Well, that, but we have to, we have to thin out their numbers. If we don't kill them, they'll die. We have to kill. Them. And it's like, well, when you frame it that way, I guess like, <laughs> you know, but yeah. my friend, we have, we are, we're cruising along here on the second session. And, um, and I wanted to just sum up with the, just a very, little things that I like to ask. Cause I'm curious. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any routines fitness wise or, um, preparation wise that you do fairly regularly to keep you ready for what is a very onerous physical and, um, you know, tactically important to prepare for thing like a hunt. Is there something yeah. you do all year long or most some of the year? To yeah. Do? Yeah. And I mean, last night from 9.30 to 11, I was at the gym <laughs> specifically uh-huh. for that. I personally have always enjoyed physical fitness to the point where I just want to be healthy and in good shape and ready for anything, whatever the world throws at me. And I just find even with things like sicknesses, 
one of the best things you can do is be active and be fit and, and you won't get hit as hard. Let's throw COVID at that. And, and people I know that obese, um, and, and don't live the healthiest, healthiest lifestyles and how they've were hit with it versus those that were healthy. And I mean, not going to go down the, the COVID path in this discussion, but just, I, I like to be healthy and, and I don't, I'm not a, a fad or a diet or a, a quick exercise, the seven minute, this, that, that, that that's mm-hmm. kind of a fad to me. It's about being consistently um, active. And I mean, in the summers, my wife and I, we throw our, our packs on and throw the kids in them, like the, the child carriers. And we take them hiking into waterfalls. There's a lot of phenomenal places out Tumblr Ridge that you can Monkman, right? hike. Monkman's just absolutely stunning. Yeah. So there's lots of spots out there and I, we could hike every weekend for the rest of our lives and not hit the same trail twice kind of thing. Like it's mm-hmm. phenomenal, but I try and hit the gym three to five times a week. And I don't care what you do. If you're there, you're exercising, you're going to do fine. For the most part, I try and maintain the weight that I'm at now, which isn't optimal for, for the mountains. I'm kind of between 198 and 205 just for daily walk around. But if I decide I'm going on a sheep hunt uh, in the fall, I really up my cardio and I'll do kind mm-hmm. of three different cardio things, a warm up uh, or high intensity interval training. Absolutely amazing. You can't beat that for stamina yeah. and being able to hike. And I mean, this, this fall, when I went on my sheep hunt, I, it was a last minute. Greg said, Hey, why don't you and I go on a little trip? Okay. When are we going? Uh, a couple <laughs> of weeks. Okay. So I wasn't prepared for it and it kicked my ass just trying to keep up with him. He weighs 150 pounds and, and he's just wiry. He's a, mach- he's a machine. He's do a mountain keep, machine. Do you keep any gear, um, food organized for that kind of spontaneous moment where yep. you don't have to yep. go and shop? I've, I've got $250, $300 worth of freeze-dried food. That's probably an understatement. I've probably got 30 to 40 packs of freeze-dried food in the basement that I can just go grab. How many days are we going? Here's my three meals of each type. And then I just grab some granola and, and some yeah. nuts and, and I'm ready to go kind of thing. We buy a bag of apples on the way out that eat for the first few days as well to have some of that. So yeah, I always have that. One of the best things I know I was taught by one of my sheep hunt buddies is electrolytes. Yep. I have those little uh, N-U-U-N, I think is the brand. Yeah, yeah, I have some too. Yep. Yeah. And I just have those that every day I drink water while I'm hiking. But the, at the end of that day of hiking, I drop two of those tabs in and down a liter of water with that. So you don't cramp up. It's so mm-hmm. important. The other thing that I tell everybody to buy that's heading into the mountain is sock liners, mm-hmm. ultra thin, super thin, no seams on them just to stop. Cause some people put mole skin or anything else on their feet. You put a sock liner on and then your nice wool sock. Um, like a, a merino wool sock and you won't end up with the blisters and sore spots from that liner. I mean, I, I wore them three seasons ago on a sheep hunt all the way into the mountains, shot a sheep. And the next day I was like, ah, they're kind of a little crispy. I'm not going to wear them. Hike 10 minutes out with all the weight on my back and had to stop because I was getting hot spots. So mm-hmm. they're a must have for, for any mountain hiker. Hot, hot spots are the worst. And when you got 60 pounds on your back, you don't necessarily get them, but one, there's 80 or 90. It's like they just show up out of nowhere. Right. Yep. And it's the mountains are unforgiving, man. Like they, you, you know, your place in the universe pretty quick rifle or not. Yep. When the mountains decide to throw weather at you or 
you know, mother nature, you know, the grizzly bear, et cetera. It's pretty, pretty bloody humbling pretty quick. Yeah. I, I remember. So is it, what's, what's the name of the gym in Dawson? Uh, well, the true North fitness is the one I go to. There's okay. four gyms in town. So I worked out at true North fitness because we were delayed because of the fires. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I love that gym. That is an awesome gym. I'm, I'm doing sled pushes. I'm doing like rope, yeah. uh, rope climbs. And I'm working out for like two hours thinking there's the days have gone. And then my cousin's like, Oh, pine pass just opened. We're going. And, and so I do this and then I got to go hike up the whole mountain full gear. Of like, and now I like that stuff. Cause it's, I like the physical challenge, but yep. at the same time I was like, yeah, so, you know, it, it was, uh, it was like, that wasn't a good decision, but <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome, man. Is there anything that you want to share where your projects you're working on, where people can find you anything like well, that? Mate? Um, first and foremost, we're extremely excited to be expanding to Prince George and opening that location this spring and a few technical difficulties with the whole supply and demand issues and being able to get product and get things as simple as um, slat wall have slowed down the process, but we're trudging forward and it'll be a spring opening. This summer is also our 60th anniversary and we've partnered with Trench Brewing. There's going to be two Core Lanes limited edition beers, the Pine Pass Pale Ale and the Viking that I worked on on the artwork with them for the labeling. Oh, that, man, that's uh, cool. There's little things too. check out the when these come out, the GPS coordinates that are on every trench. There's there's little Easter eggs in there and places that are near and dear to us. So mm-hmm. we're very excited. That's going to hit the market here in about a month. And um, we're we're ramping up our podcast again as as well, just because they're so enjoyable to do and it's it's great publicity. And it's um, so you can check out Hunt Hard Talk Free. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Music. You can watch the videos because we film them as well on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can check out Coraline Sporting Goods on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. And also check out our, our side company, Ballistics Custom Turrets, if you're interested in getting into long-range shooting. So that's can, that's my shameless plug for the day. No, you've <laughs> earned it. I think we've been talking for three hours. I don't know between the two time slots, but just last question. Can somebody who, who might be interested to shop with you do so um, via your site anywhere in Canada? Yeah. We ship all across Canada. We've got a lot of customers in Eastern Canada and some of my favorite customers are up in Nunavut. We ship product up to Clyde River, Nunavut, and I hope to get up there one day to visit these customers and be able to not take part in, but be along on the the seal hunts and traditional hunting that they do up there. So no, anywhere in Canada, you can order it. We'll ship it to you. And please reach, reach out to us through email phone call. We like talking to people. So if you have questions, we'll give you answers. They might not be what you're looking for, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll supply you with the information that we've gotten. We've got 60 years of it. No, that's amazing, Aaron. And thank you for you. Thank you for being open to discussing stuff that is, you know, I guess on the fringe <laughs> or, yeah. and, uh, and you know, if though, for those who are interested, it's not my podcast to continue listening to it's, it's Aaron's and Coral Lane's. It's going <laughs> to stay on this subject matter. Um, whereas I go all over the place. So again, thank you. And I, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, hopefully. for sure. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. It, uh, who knows where we'll end up this year, but uh, you yeah. know, I hope, I hope it's up there. Well, and I'll be down your way too. So if I'm down, I'll harass you. I'll reach out. 
Sounds good, brother. Okay. Excellent. Be well. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Talk to you later. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. We know there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.